When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Here it comes again, lunch. Will it be the same old, same old? Or are you ready to take a vacation from the ordinary with the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub at Firehouse Subs? Freshly sliced smoked turkey breast, craveably sweet mustard sauce, and a hint of Caribbean seasoning. Just $5.55 for a medium. Save time. Order the new Jamaican Jerk Turkey Sub on the Firehouse Subs app. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Participating locations, limited time only, plus tax. Prices may vary for delivery. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts, as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of WrestleNomics Radio. I am your co-host, Christopher Mukigana-Harrington, and joined by my North by Northeast, Mr. Brandon Howard Thurston. Brandon, how are you doing today? I'm great, Chris. How are you? I'm doing all right. I, uh... I'm recording in my, my luxurious uh, basement studio here, and uh, as I was telling you off air, you know, when I look to my left here, I have a skeleton sitting in a chair, a giant cheese head, a set of lights that I've taken down from the uh, improv studio, a enormous, uh, kind of like a smiley face head that you can imagine a mascot would wear, Okay. a uh, 1960s map of Ghana, a collection of Nintendo games that is all over the wall. And then behind me is an Apple IIe that is uh, covered in software. So, What kind of team has a, a giant smiley face as a mascot? That was, again, an improv-related prop. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. There was a, before we rebranded the improv troupe, uh, the, the Jester's Comedy Improv was a kind of a, a, a smiley face jester-looking thing. Nice. And uh, it's kind of like the Emoji Movie almost. It's it's pretty uh, uh, terrifying, actually. Maybe I'll post a picture <laughs> after this of what it looks like when you wear this head. And uh, we used to have a guy who would stand on the corner on the street just holding a sign and just saying, you know, improv show. And wow. he'd be wearing this hat and, like, traffic would, like, crawl because they couldn't believe oh, what they wow. were Oh, wow. Yeah. So, that, that happens yeah. a lot with traffic. Like, may- maybe that could, uh, that giant smiley face could be a... Uh, Sounds like it could be in a David Lynch movie or maybe a, uh, at this point, a fashion fashion file segment, right? It could be. It, maybe it will be the new WrestleNomics mascot. So at a, a WrestleMania weekend, we'll wear it, and this way fans oh. can find us easily in the crowd. Yes, that is a great idea. <laughs> um, what about you? Have you been uh, wrestling lately? Have you been making uh, the money? I don't think I've wrestled since I, I wrestled on a Wednesday night at a fair, and I think we talked about that. Or there was definitely an Easter egg on the end of last week. Did you do? You, do you listen to to the Easter eggs that I sometimes put at the end of the shows? There's been more than one. I know you're aware of one of them, but 
I, you know, I think I missed the Easter egg at the end of last week's show. So yeah. now you've enticed me to go back and listen. So I will. Well, I won't spoil it. We'll just leave it at that. But I, I don't, I don't think I've wrestled since then, and that was like late July. So okay. I, I've got one coming up for Empire State Wrestling at the end of this month, where I should be taking on big time Bill Collier. But, but yeah. But I, but I'm ready. I told you we, we, I'd be ready to record about five minutes after I made coffee, and then I finally called you about ten minutes later. Um, because I, I refused, I miscalculated the time. I refused to, um, buy an actual, like regular machine coffee maker because I'm, I'm afraid it will take up too, too much space in my small apartment. And, uh, so what I do to make coffee is I take a pot and I put water in it and I put the coffee, well, I boil the water and I put the coffee grounds in it. And then, you know, just things, things become just way more inconvenient that way. So maybe I'll give in soon and buy a real coffee maker, but I'm, but I am here and I'm ready to go. You're like the the pro wrestlers of the early '90s with their tuna fish sandwiches on the road on the on the oh, tours yeah. of Japan. Yeah, I've I've been there. Well, not to Japan, but yes. <laughs> We're not going to Japan. We're going to China, baby. That's right. Uh, WWE had a pretty big announcement on Thursday, which um, kind of baffled me. Uh, just the way it all rolled out. You know, the 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 lead up to this announcement has been years in the making. That's right. And then they just kind of threw it out there. They didn't do a conference call on it. The details were vague and opaque. Um, you know, even to people like me who were scrutinizing it pretty closely, we were having a little bit of difficulty understanding exactly what they were announcing. But basically they're saying the WWE network has come to China. It's available through the PPTV service, which is the same service they use for distributing Raw and SmackDown in China, and that they use to distribute uh, WrestleMania as a pay-per-view this year. No, no, PPTV, and, as I understand it, is basically it's a it's a mobile app, right, where you can watch things on TV basically for free. Well, what I understand it as is it was a streaming service. It's an over-the-top service, you know, like a Roku or something, mm-hmm. and it um, eventually was bought by a big electronics maker. Um, I think it's called like Suning Electronics, something like that. Yep. And so there's probably some really good integration with the service on that service, you know, on those televisions. So it'd be kind of like if, if um, you know, Samsung or something had, you know, the way smart TVs are. So I think it has smart t- TV integration and okay. it's an over-the-top service. And I believe it is a subscription service of some kind or at least a – it offers subscription services. So maybe Roku might be even the best analogy where you know, you're essentially – you're buying an access portal and then from that portal you can subscribe to certain things. So, so if you're living in China and you own a TV, there's a smart TV, there's probably a PPTV app living on your operating system? That's that's kind of my belief. I would love to know for sure, but I mean, I read a lot about this company, and what you what you realize is to that all they our have, listeners in China, if you, if you know, let us know. Yeah, they they um, they've spent a lot. They're very cash rich, as they were described. Uh, I mean, if you go to their Wikipedia page, it's literally like two sentences where it's like the service was developed by people in a university. It was sold to this company. That's like the entirety of the English Wikipedia page on PPTV. Yeah, I'm looking at it now. It's very short. It's like two sentences. Um, but they, uh, they, they've they spent a lot of money on getting rights to you know a, a whole bunch of different things. When I looked at that Reuters article that I mentioned from July of this year that I tweeted out people to look at, um, they've spent, you know, what is it? PPTV has spent 250 million euros, which is almost 290 million US, for a five-year La Liga deal. 700 million for some EPL English Premier League uh, rights. Uh, 250 for Germany's uh, league, 
And then on top of that, you know, they have, of course, gotten a deal with um, WWE and some other things. But just says that they're spending a ton of money on getting rights. And basically, people are somewhat using the service. A lot of people seem to just be using illegal streams. But uh, it's interesting to see whether or not this is actually going to take off. Uh, WWE always was very vague on whether or not they were going to go into this and launch WWE Network as a service. Or rather, they were going to find partnerships, and, and you'll get into that a little bit later, about all the different partnerships around the world that they've done. But maybe just knowing how difficult it's been for certain companies to operate in China, a lot of times you've wanted to partner with a Chinese-owned um, company to essentially be the face in the front of your access there. And so it's it, it's intriguing that they, they got it done. You know, I, I was very uh, skeptical that China was coming, and as far as I can tell... This includes a WWE Network service that is very similar to what we get in the United States. There will not be a delay on the pay-per-views. The pay-per-views will air live on the WWE Network through PPTV. And in addition, the pay-per-views will be available for individual purchase. So it's almost like uh, maybe even Rogers Cable or something in Canada where you could either subscribe to the service or hypothetically you could still go out and buy the pay-per-view if you really wanted it. Yeah, and we know about the price points too. You want to get into that now? Like, we sure. know that it's it's about it's about half the price of of what it is in the U.S. So in, U, in the U.S., of course, it's nine ninety nine, and in China, they're selling it for what comes out to about four fifty uh, U.S. per month. Or you can sort of like Flow Slam, or like how the W Network was at first, where they wanted people to make a six month commitment. Well, here's a twelve month commitment for thirty dollars. Yeah, and and to be Really clear, of course, they're not pricing it in U.S. They're pricing it in, in right. yuan. And so it's 30 yuan for, is which is about 450. Yuan? Okay. So I, I'm probably saying it wrong, but <laughs> what... Oh, so it sounds good to me. I don't know. Well, he, here's my, my fun little fact is, is while my Twitter handle is Ghana, I actually lived in a different country for much longer than Ghana, which was China. So in 1987, I lived in China for a year. Did I ever tell you that? 1987? Yes. Okay. I I, th- I saw something on Twitter. I was thinking about asking about this. Like, did you live in China? That's why I got out of that tweet. It's like, did, did Chris live in China for a while? I did a very long time ago. In 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 1987 and 1988, I lived in China for a year in a, a city called Xiamen, wow. which is a, a port city, uh, kind of in the corner of China, where actually so you, a lot of the uh, capitalists. Kind so you of, must have um, been like eight or ten or something, or eight or six. nine, or six. Six. six okay. And seven. Yeah, I was okay. a very young man. Oh. <laughs> so um, it, wow. yeah, I. I know China of 1987-88 through the eyes of an American and uh, in, in this one city, and it was a very different place. <laughs> you know, we never saw cars. Um, really? There was all buses and bikes, yeah. There was, wow. you'll, you'd see a car about once a month, and that usually meant like it really? was some big government official. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, it was, it was a very different place. Were, so, you, were you living in, the, in one of the bigger cities? Well, Xiamen is, um, was a special economic zone that was defined by the government, so... Um, Ding Xiaoping, uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to pull names here from my head, uh, was basically they, they, Xiamen was one of these areas that had, uh, if I, I know my history right, it was part of kind of the revolution against Mao was kind of more where it was centered. So it was very much punished after the revolution. And so it was economically deprived quite a lot for many, many years. And so when they decided to kind of open the door a little bit for economic involvement and investment in China were very similar to now. You had to partner with a Chinese firm in order to get in. So my father worked for Eastman Kodak, the uh, the pictures company, you know, uh, photo- photography and okay. motion pictures. So 
he worked on a project with them in China to basically go over there and help kind of modernize some of these um, photography film things. I think they were changing a factory from a from black and white film to color film, something like that. Um, and it was a long term involvement, and it was to kind of stem off the growth of Fujifilm in Japan, which was Eastman Kodak's big rival. Um, so, uh, yes, we moved there for a year, and uh, I lived there, and I can tell you there was no PPTV at the time. Uh, <laughs> there was not, you know, the best we could do is go to Hong Kong and get a whole bunch of pirated Apple IIe software, um, but it was night, night and day. So I'm, I'm always absolutely astounded at just how much change has come in my lifetime, you know, compared to the 80s till now of just the way China is. And so Xiamen was like one of the first places I think they had Chinese millionaires because – you know, it was kind of a free for all, especially in the 90s uh, when these companies kind of started up and they figured out how to bribe the right officials and kind of grow, 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 grow. Were, so, were you able to follow wrestling at all at that time? I didn't really follow wrestling as a six, seven year old that much. I remember watching Superstars as a kid, uh, but just when I was in, in the China US. or oh, okay, just in no, US. just in the US. Yeah. No, no, there was there was really no. No, I, I, A, I wasn't really interested in wrestling as a yeah. seven, eight-year-old that much more than I would be interested in cartoons or anything else. Though uh, the joke that did come up this week – yeah, you're right. I did mention China this week because I mentioned with the Disney BAM thing that I used to have uh, – I used to have a video, VCR that would play both PAL, CCAM, and uh, um, NTSC. NTSC. Yeah, yeah I, I, had a, I had a videotape player that I could just do a little shift on. I could play all those different videotape types. Uh, as I wanted, which was actually pretty nice. awesome later on in life, because you know almost nobody has that in the U.S. Right. But um, uh, but I had a whole bunch of PAL VHS tapes, and so one of them was Sports Goofy. So I always think of China and Sports Goofy and and the Disney and all the the, the connections there. We're I, getting way off track. No, but I, I remember yeah. like my to get even more off track. I remember even my my tape trading days where I would get. I started to get to know like some people from from Europe and talk wrestling with them, and that, and I I think I tried to tape trade with someone from Europe, and they sent me some PAL tapes of like the Takata and Vader match from UWFI, and I was like, all right, we'll we'll see if this PAL tape works. It, it did not work. It was just like eight hours of snow. Yeah. Oh, that's that's frustrating. Yeah, that's why it was so cool having this like little VH. Like as a that my parents must have spent a lot of money in it. It must have been we probably bought it in Hong Kong. Uh, when we were going over there because we knew that this was going to be an issue uh, between these different kind of VHS things. And uh, uh, it was a good investment. You know, we bought a lot of, you could get, you know, super, super, super cheap stuff back in those days in Hong Kong and whatnot. So well, uh, when, when I, we have our, our WrestleMania uh, live podcast, you, you should bring your, your pal and uh, NTSC uh, VCR and I'll, I'll dig up my, my pal videotapes. I'll finally be able to watch those videotapes that someone gave me uh 10, 15 years ago. I have some concerns on whether or not this VHS player has you still uh, have lasted it? this long. I don't know. Right. If you ever go to my house in Rochester, you'll discover that my basement is a shrine to the 80s already. So we probably do. We probably do, but I'll have to check. I still have a Betamax uh, VCR. Oh, my. Yeah. Um, so the, the 450 a month for this WWE network in China offering is actually about the same price, uh, 30 yuan. There's uh, there's because there's two currencies. There's the RMB and there's the yuan. Um, and the RMB was the currency that you could get if you're kind of a foreigner, and the yuan was the actual currency of the people. It's very confusing. It's very un- unusual setup. So um, the that's the same price they charge for WrestleMania this year. And just based on the fact that you know we didn't see a huge 
uh, uh, China WrestleMania number. It, it does make me wonder whether or not um, this is going to take off at the rate at which I think some stock analysts think it's going to take off compared to what it really is going to take off at. Yeah, that, that's the one thing that I got out of this. So we got we, we read the press release, and it looks like from the press release, okay, there's going to be W Network subscriptions offered at a monthly rate and at an annual rate. And then they're also going to sell pay-per-views on an individual basis, just like, you know, traditional pay-per-view. Um, but I didn't get a price point for what, what the pay-per-views are going to cost. We know that the, the, month, the monthly rate for the network is going to be 450 The annual rate for the network is going to be about $30. But we don't know, or at least I didn't see what the rate is going to be for individual pay-per-views. But you're saying that the WrestleMania was about the same, about the, the 30 yuan or 450 U.S.? Right? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the um, the the China WrestleMania release that was on uh, the corporate WWE thing, it said here it will be. See, what's funny is it it, it refers to it as being thirty RMB, uh, which is the other currency. And so, I, I, but when I look up thirty RMB, it appears to be equal to four dollars. And oh, that's interesting. The RMB is just the word. Oh, okay. RMB is yuan. It's called okay. yuan RMB. I see. Okay, when when I was there, it was it was confusing because there was kind of like two currencies, and you would convert from one to the other. I will have to go and and reinvestigate how this all worked, because <laughs> um, it was very confusing when I was there as a kid. There's kind of two currencies, but in the last thirty years, things have changed. Who would have thought? Um, but the point being, yes, that was the WrestleMania price. I do wonder. You know, somebody else mentioned in that Reuters article. Uh, that they spent about 10 yuan when they were watching a Manchester United versus Arsenal match on Super Sports. And that was a buck 48. So I wouldn't be surprised if it was something like that, if they actually just did it for maybe 10 yuan versus the 30 yuan that you're you're spending for a monthly service. Because you, I, I would think in China, you can't get away with the, the garbage that it is in the US where you're spending, you know, you're asking for 50 to 70 bucks for a pay-per-view and then $10 for an over-the-top service. Um, I would think that they would not go that route at all in a country that doesn't have a history of pay-per-view purchase. Yeah. Um, do we want to get into all the different price points around the world? First, I just want to kind of talk about this uh, Wall Street Journal article that um, came up. So mm -hmm. what was interesting is they made this big announcement. But if you read the announcement on the page, there was no information about the price points. And in fact, like I was saying, it was even conflicting to me on whether or not they were offering the pay-per-views live or blacked out the way they were doing in India. Um, but this Wall Street Journal article went out proving that, again, that they had obviously foresight because, you know, they reached out, they got this article done so that it would be in there in the press. Uh, so they knew this was coming. And uh, one little quote from it that kind of blew me away was Michelle Wilson's quote where it said, China's major cities are home to more than 140 million WWE fans, according to a company commission study two years ago, only some of which watched legitimately, according to Michelle Wilson, chief revenue and marketing officer. So uh, just that idea that 140 million. And I went back and I found one of those old investment decks from about uh, a year and a half ago where they were showing, you know, what is the affinity yeah. And I think they said 150 million households or something in the world. These are all broadband households? Well, just 150 million households is how many people have affinities. And then it, I don't even think it included broadband or not because I think it was more to talk about television affinity is really where this all started from. But uh, it, it's almost as if you're saying in some ways that you know China was equal to 
the rest of the world or equal to two thirds of the rest of the world if you're going to do a conversion from maybe people to households or something like that. But it, it was just funny that, you know, you'd think that would mean, okay, well, if we're at 1.6 million today, of course we can hit 2 million with China, right? You know, if you're telling me you just added to the pie something that is almost, you know, at least two thirds as big as the pie was or more to this, the entire addressable marketplace, why wouldn't you be at 2 million? you know, within a few months. And I don't think I'd be surprised if they could get even a hundred thousand out of China. I'd be pretty stunned because UK is your biggest market. Canada is probably your second biggest market. Your third biggest market is probably, you know, combination of Australia, New Zealand, or maybe another European country like uh, uh, Germany. Um, Then fourth is probably whichever one of those two I didn't mention yet is. And then fifth is, in my opinion, probably going to be, um, Either some Latin American country that is done really, you know, has an, an unusual amount of streaming that goes on in it or um, a small European country like the Nordics, maybe where we've seen a lot more adoption of that. And then when you get down to six, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe India, possibly that's even a, a stretch, maybe uh, Japan. Again, that's a stretch. And then that would probably be me closer to where I think China would fit in in, in my mind. Uh, at this moment here but that's just you know who knows where it's going to be maybe if this new um, event in shanghai is a huge hit that they're doing in september and you know they they really market the hell out of the wwe network at that event to make that a big deal and you you know it's a a good joint thing maybe that will get a hundred thousand people signing up you know really quickly something like that but i i just really don't think it's going to have much effect on the 2017 number before we talk pricing what do you think yeah i just did a quick google search to see well, how many broadband households are there in china and i and i guess this is from wikipedia it tells me 147 million broadband households that's just a little bit more than there are supposedly wb fans in china um india yeah, actually- again it's a household to, to fan thing so you got to figure the ratio there right. though china unlike most other countries actually has less people per household unless you're thinking older generations right because of the one child policy hmm. unlike in the u.s where you're going to expect to have you know two kids a house at best you'll have one kid a house but you probably have your your grandparents or older people living with you in those broadband houses yeah. Um, in, some in, India's got even an even lower number of broadband subscriptions, only 18 million out of their 1.3 yeah. billion. Well, I don't know how many households there are, but there's over a billion people there. Which, which is why in some of these countries, broadband might not be the solution as much as mobile. You know, when you think about India, India yeah. actually went the route with YouTube and whatnot of creating the ability to download content offline and then watch it on your mobile phone right and, and mobile and, mobile cellular subscriptions are, are way higher they're like on par with china over 200 million almost 300 million yeah and and the same thing so and and you know the areas sometimes where there's almost been like internet cafes type experiences in some of these countries too where you could say maybe it's not about the home but maybe it's about other places people can go and, and watch this content in mass so um, I know the Wall Street Journal article used these uh, estimates by saying what is the average revenue that someone takes home, and when it exceeds a certain threshold, that's when they become eligible for these kind of peripheral subscription services. And so X percentage of people had gone ahead and, and reached that point, and that's why we thought it was so good. But you know, again, these are all uh, abstractions of abstractions in a country that has pretty rampant piracy 
when it comes to even streams and things like that, where, you know, it, it's as, as rampant as the university students are outright saying that in the Reuters article of, I look for free yeah. streams or pirated streams before I would ever consider buying something. They let, so, in, this, in this article, they, the guy let him use his name and everything. Like, here's my name, I'm 21, and yeah, I pirate stuff, and I have no plans on buying a subscription to, yeah. not, not to WWE, but this is soccer stuff. Yeah. So it, it will be interesting. Um, I did all these calculations way back when I was writing for Bleacher Report when the WWE Network was first coming out. And I did all these calculations on English proficiency, number of broadband homes in the, the place, um, relative income, all these calculations to try to estimate which countries would be the best places for, for WWE to get in and which ones wouldn't. And by far the hardest two were to estimate were India and China, just because of, um, you know, kind of the disparity between broadband and cellular and whether or not this service would focus right for them and also the relative income. So one of the biggest um, complaints about the India rollout is the fact that they're still trying to sell it at nine ninety nine in a in a country like that. Where this kind of shows that you know local currency of going to 450 might make a whole lot more sense uh, for this, and we have no idea whether or not the government will just turn a blind eye, or whether that there is a risk to the service of just being turned off someday if you know the right people aren't happy. And we've seen that as far as if you read the stories that Disney went through and all the hurdles they jumped through to get into China. Even they had their Disney Life service, which was kind of an OTT service they were running in China, just get magically shut off one day. And they were doing quite a lot of stuff to try to appease the government at the time. Um, and we've seen many other examples of streaming services just suddenly being turned off, Discovery and other people. Uh, so there's nothing to say that PPTV is immune from this. Um, at the same time, it's not really seeming like it's going through all of the normal channels. So maybe they are somewhat protected. And the fact that they are owned by such a big electronics corporation that's spending so much money, I think gives them some protection because obviously that's a well-connected service and uh, has some pretty rich pockets uh, that it's spending on today. Yeah. The, the parent company in the, um, in the Reuters article you shared with me, that the parent company is, is bringing in, I don't know, billion somewhere around. I don't know if I look it up here. They're, they're making billions and billions of dollars a year, right? Like, let's see here. Annual revenue of around $22 billion a year. And, like, yeah. to compare that with a company like WWE, which is what I know best, is they're making, WWE's making less than a billion dollars in revenue a year. They're, they made, what, $729 million last True. year. True. And, and just to be clear here, PPTV is owned by this $22 billion right, right. company. They are not, the PPTV by no means is, I can't find any revenue estimates for, um, what PPTV has in terms of subscribers or how much they generate. It's really not clear to me yep. um, what their model is. It is interesting they're doing a revenue-sharing model with them. Yeah. Um, and we don't, is, so we don't know what the you – know, obviously, they didn't disclose the details of you know, what, the, what the cut is. But this, this is kind of similar to what they're doing with Apple TV. Right? I think Apple TV takes like 10% of the revenue. Um, but, of course, this could be like 50-50 or 40-60. We, we don't know. And I would think China might be a, uh, I mean, sorry, Canada might be a good example of this. Canada, yeah. basically, WWE and, and, and made OSN a deal with Rogers. Well. Yeah. Yeah. They made a deal with OSN. They made a deal with Rogers where they basically said, you get to distribute the service. When you get subscribers, we will get a portion of this revenue. Um, you will probably pay, a, I'm assuming they pay, you know, at least for OSN and Rogers, I imagine they're paying a licensing fee, you know, that WWE gets money up front. For them, WWE is distributed through OSN and through Rogers for Raw and SmackDown. 
So you can almost imagine it's a big bundled contract where they're saying, I'm giving you, you know, I'll make up a number $20 million a year or whatever it is. And then in exchange for that, I get the rights to distribute WWE Network and I get, we'll give you a cut of all the subscriptions we get. But um, so it's, it's closer to that, but it, it's just, you know, keep in mind, that means every China subscription is worth at best 50% of what another subscription in the world is worth. And then of that, they're probably only getting, I would guess half, you know, a lot yeah. of times these yeah. kind of things are 50, 50 splits. Yeah. When so, I hear ad revenue share, I think, you know, it's, it's pretty close to even. Yeah. So, you know, you're talking about four Chinese subscribers per one U S subscriber. If you were to say what the math might look like. And so, you know, maybe you can get 400,000 Chinese subscribers. But my response to that would be, wouldn't it be easier to get 100,000 U.S. subscribers? I think one of them would be a lot easier to get than the other, personally. Would it, though? Like, well, how do you get an, an extra 100,000 U.S. subscribers? Well, I think the variability that we see right now on the, the swell in the beginning of the year and the loss at the end of the year. Besides telling um, Vince McMahon to stay in Stanford. But. You know, um, a, a lot of it comes from a when there's hot events, we do see swells go up. And so if you spend some on advertising, you might be able to reach B. I don't think by any means that they've tapped out the ability to find marketplaces that are interested in the WWE network. They've just shown no interest in marketing to them. So I've always said, you know, why did why was there never a print ad in Sports Illustrated or something like that? You know, that that might have actually attracted certain f groups of fans. I think their analytical capabilities that they have now, they can come up with new things that would, would help. Doing any kind of a bundling offer would help a lot. You know, you get a free T-shirt if you subscribe for two months. You know, whatever it is. Well, all um, that stuff requires, like, let's say they come up with a, a new marketing campaign. That's going to – they're going to have to pay for all that advertising. Like, they're going to have yeah. to pay a lot of money for that. I mean, how much money are they really spending – to set this up with PPTV, it's really just a business decision with it, with some ad revenue sharing, isn't it? Right. Sure, there's, sure. There's no I, I big just spend. Mean, I just mean finding more than a quarter million people is tough. I think finding a hundred thousand people in a marketplace that has shown a lot of variability, I'm sure they could regain a hundred thousand subscribers with either the right programming decisions, or the right analytical, uh, or the right bundling with any other service. You know, there, there'd be ways to goose a hundred thousand people. Yeah. But I, I, I just think. From a from a, a large standpoint, that's where we stand. That's not to say you shouldn't invest in China. I think yeah. what will be curious is, you know, some of these services, I I think there's other reasons that they've pissed off the government one way or the other. I, I kind of don't feel like WWE is going to be so much in that area um, unless maybe they run a Jinder Mahal-esque promo, you know. Where, you know, you're running a, a, a campaign around a guy pretending to be, you know, speaking on behalf of a billion Chinese, something like that. You know, that would be the sort of thing mm -hmm. that I could see there being a little bit more tension about. You, you think the, the Chinese government is going to tolerate the, uh, I don't know, the nationalist, the xenophobic stuff? If, if it comes to, I mean, like, if, if, and I think this is something that we could see, you know, down the lines. There might be a day where there's some big Chinese superstar that they try to push really hard because they see China as this big promising market. And if they, you think if they do some, something similar to what they're doing with Jinder Mahal as it concerns India, that the Chinese government won't be happy about that. It will be interesting. I mean, when you look at what, what kind of movies are made in China, um, either they're making these kind of blockbusters where they're literally creating Chinese characters just to play, put in there to make it, you know, kind of play better in China. Yeah. Or uh, if you look at Chinese produced movies, a lot of them are these weird historical dramas. 
And that's a lot because it, you can get around the censorship rules if you kind of place it in a time that is not now <laughs> of what you're talking about. And so there's a lot of that going on. Um, you know, sex is the one thing that has been a, pretty censored. Uh, and so that would be where I would worry if WWE would get in trouble is, you know, we have seen examples where Chinese television has re-edited, you know, soap operas and things if they think that there's too much cleavage or it's too, mm. too you know, sexually explicit. And so that would be the one thing that, you know, what WWE considers PG uh, kind of varies by the day and the moment. Yeah. And I could see there being an element where they m might cut away feeling that, you know, what we consider an okay women's outfit uniform angle might be too much for them. But again, it's going to depend on who it is that's making those decisions, who it is who's raising a ruckus. And then on top of that, uh, you know, the Chinese government, I remember seeing something about the the people's committees and their decision to spend a whole bunch of money on programming and sport in this like next whatever the, the term because they, they put out these kind of uh, directional statements that go on for I don't remember whether it's two years or four years or three years and one of them was about how much money they wanted to spend on sport and television and programming kind of to to activate those so the other thing would be if WW or if, if China ever decides to get into the entertainment kind of direction themselves and they feel that WWE is edging them out that would be an example of where you know you you could see them being pushed aside um, but it, it will be a real big question. I think it's sex is probably going to get them more in trouble than than um, violence or or even xenophobic nationalistic angles. And all this stuff like Raw and SmackDown right now are airing live on PPTV, I believe, right? They're airing. They're being dubbed into Mandarin. I don't know whether it's live or it's on a like 12-hour delay or something. But um, pay-per-view yeah. certainly will be live. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that they're, they're doing that. Um, uh, let's talk about, you know, kind of how it looks in the rest of the world, though. Uh, you yeah. did a good job of kind of doing a price per market, and I, I reminded you of one or two markets that people don't ever think about, like right. Malaysia. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I ever knew about that in the first place. But yeah, if you go through, of course, when WWE Network was launched in February 2014, um, it, was, it was originally offered for $9.99 a month or for $60. I think it was $59.99 uh, per six months. Of course, that's for six, six months, yeah. Right, and then that six-month commitment was done away with after a while. And so now just in, in the U.S., it's nine ninety nine a month. And if we just stick to what the conversion is as of like yesterday for U.S. dollars, uh, in, in the U.K., it's nine pounds, and that converts to about $13. In Ireland, it's €12.99, Euros, and that converts to about $15 U.S. In Canada, I know it had been eleven ninety nine Canadian for a while, and I, I, I've asked around. And I can't find anybody who tells me it's still eleven ninety nine. Everybody tells me it's now twelve ninety nine. Uh, it seems to be regardless of what whether you've got Rogers or another Canadian uh, cable provider. So that so it looks like it's twelve ninety nine Canadian in Canada. So that's about ten twenty three or that's about ten dollars Canadian. So about the same, a little bit more uh, than we're paying in the U.S. And uh, now we've got China for about four fifty per month. In Malaysia, it comes out to about seven, about seven dollars, maybe seven and a half dollars per month. In the Middle East, through OSN, it's nine 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 American. And in, in countries like India, Germany, Australia, and the rest of the world, I don't think they've got a cable provider that's, you know, helping them deliver the offering. It's just you know, you go to network.w.com and you sign up for the network, and it's nine 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 throughout, I believe, the rest of the world. And I know there's some taxes, especially in, it seems to be in European countries, that bump the price up a little bit. 
when it comes to the currency conversion. But yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a VAT as value added tax yeah. that's added to all everything. And in many countries that can be ten, twenty five percent. Uh so so you can see a lot of people who are actually paying more like thirteen or fourteen bucks. If you pay through PayPal, I know um, sometimes it seems like it costs more than nine ninety nine. If you're in certain areas of the U.S., you know there was a whole Chicago internet Netflix tax that went through at one time. There's discussion that WW Network was going to have to add a surcharge, like Netflix was users were being charged a surcharge. So uh, there's a lot definitely going on with that. I think the UK one is probably the most stunning. That it's at nine ninety nine in pounds. And a year ago, that was a whole lot more than it is today. The pound has really been just crushed over the last two years here because, you know, it used to be, you know, 15 bucks more than that. You know, it's it's about one point two nine dollars to a pound today, whereas if you go back to the middle of 2016, it was more like one point four. And if you go back to the middle of 2014, it's more like one point six. So Brexit is as and probably other things, but Brexit as one big piece has taken a pounding on the pound. And so it's down to only being, you know, 13 bucks for a sub versus I used to always be excited for WWE because I said, well, how great is it that your number one international market, you get almost one and a half times the price of your UK sub uh, than you do in the US. Like, that's great for them. But uh, it, it just speaks to if you actually go look at the latest 10Q and you divide out the dollars on the WWE Network and then you, you have the domestic one where you know it's about nine ninety nine, and then you take what the domestic average subs are and you multiply those and then you subtract out, you know, how much network revenue is generated. It ends up being about nine ninety nine. It's a little over ten dollars. So the average price of the network subscription across the world is still around ten dollars for what WWE puts in their pocket. And that's why I say when they are down to a you know four fifty in China and of that it's a revenue share, that's gonna definitely uh, be a discounted price on a network sub as a value to WWE. Um, and so both on a profit and on a a uh, revenue side, uh, these Chinese subs are going to be. Uh, multiples just to equal the equivalent of one domestic sub. Yeah. And I think the, the whole prospect of getting into China at this really low rate, or look, we're looking at this table, which, by the way, you can become one of our uh, Patreon contributor, contributors and get access to this table and this whole doc we're looking at. But um, at, at 450 that's the lowest price point throughout the world now. By, by But it's the right thing to do. Right. Oh, yeah. I, I, I should... I should... That's what I'm going to say. Temper what I was going to say. Yeah, it is the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, it was foolish of them, in my opinion, to only go out with one price point across the world. Um, but they really like that as a, as a marketing uh, you know, idea to, to say not one price point across the world, they say. They always say that, don't they? Yeah, yeah. They, and, it, you know, people aren't really oh, – I'm the only person who remembers that it launched on Astro in Malaysia. Like, <laughs> no one else remembers that. So no one else is going to call them on the BS um but it's 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 a decent way to market it i do think you know when we talked about it a little bit last week just with netflix raising um netflix is running out of people to sub to their service who don't already sub who are you know um of a certain price point netflix is increasingly being bound by the fact that they are spending a lot on content and while they also are spending a lot on their own premiere original content it's it's not always sustainable and a lot of analysts still think that netflix is going to eventually have to raise their price 
And I think as soon as they do, WWE will be happy to also raise their price, knowing that, uh, you know, that this plateau that they're starting to hit now, they probably will have a very price inflexible uh, audience that is left that would probably still, you know, even if they raise it by two bucks, they can stand to lose some percentage of people and still be more profitable in the end, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and I think overall, the, the idea of getting into China for f- 450, considering what the average income is, I think something like only 21% of the population even makes a few thousand dollars uh, per month. I don't know. It's not per month. I think it's per year. Um, so you get the idea, like, you know, the average person in China doesn't have that much money. So if you cut the price in half, that seems reasonable. And even if China isn't going to be this really big uh, subscriber country for them, it's at least, you know, it, it gets them into China. It starts growing something in China that could lead to a bigger following down the road. Um, and, I, I, and I wonder if they're thinking, well, let's see how this lower price point, point works in China. And maybe if it works well enough, we'll look to do something similar in India. Yeah, if if that's the model, you know, I think I think price alone is never what you're selling a service on. It doesn't matter to you if I tell you that, you know, you could get this for eight bucks or six bucks. What matters to you is whether you want that. Right. So it, price alone is a, a pretty weak way to sell any product, especially if you're not racing to the bottom. So instead, you want to sell the benefits. So well, but, it's, uh, it's a factor. Yeah, it is a factor, but I, I don't think changing the price in India is going to make subscriptions explode. I think you need some other kind of marketing or, or um, value that you're adding to what you're offering to people. So a better mobile interface, a you know live event streaming of something that they care about, something, some connection. I just G- did the G- quick Jinder math Jinder Mahal here. and a great Kali at WrestleMania. Yeah. One-on-one. Uh, arm wrestling match. Oh. Um. I did the math real quick, and I said if they did 1.6 million, if they averaged that for a whole year at 9.99, which again that's probably more than they're going to average, but uh, that would be about 191.8 million dollars. And if you would raise the price to say 12.99, you'd only need about 1.23 million subs, so 1.6 down to 1.23. So you could lose a good 300,000 people and still be as profitable as you are uh, today. So that just to put it in perspective of like what a modest price increase could be worth to WWE. Um, and so I do think if there's signaling in the marketplace that, you know, Netflix is willing to go higher, I think WWE Network would follow by going higher not too too long afterwards. Yeah. And that kind of brings us to the idea of, of uh, price tiering, which uh, our, our friend Robin Reed from Voices of Wrestling, he, he raised the question to us. Like He said, do you think... Uh, the price variation internationally would make tiering the network more difficult or consider that an insignificant obstacle? Great question. Um, good question about what is the – well, number one I should point out before I answer this question. We talk about domestic subs as if they're domestic subs. But we know there are people in Canada specifically but all over the world who are using U.S.-based WWE Network subs. Because it was first launched, and they know that it's, for the most part, going to have all the bells and whistles. Through, through VPNs, and, we're talking here, right? Yeah, yeah. But, the, well, their their account is through whatever their account's through, and then they're probably using a VPN to trick the WWE Network into recognizing them as a as a U.S.-based subscriber. But uh, I, I would bet, bet that that's decreased quite a bit since the international rollout, but there must be 
some. I, I, I have no idea. How I to guess. Would too. I've heard when I brought this up, I heard from people specifically saying I'm a okay. Canadian. I use the U.S. service. I'm a European. I use the U.S. service, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I agree. It, I think it's gone down a lot myself, but I also think there might be other reasons people use VPNs. You know, they might want the U.S. based Netflix or something else. And so it, it might be part of a package deal for them in a sense of all the services they're trying to access and get. get so so um, I'm pretty naive on this. Don't VPNs cost, you have to pay for it? They're not, or are they free? Most times, if you're getting a decent VPN service, you are paying a subscription fee to that VPN okay. provider. And so maybe it has value to you if you say, I, I'm subscribing to the W Network, I'm subscribing to Netflix, I'm, I'm not from the Hulu. US, so I'm subscribing yeah. to Hulu because it's not available in any other country. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that, it, that would... it has more value to, I guess, the more services you're going to use it for. It even could even be going to uh, video game streaming for all I know that maybe you want to be on a certain sure. server that is available or, or have access to, you know, uh, some other kind of game sets or something. So, yeah, no, for sure. I think that's an element of it. So yeah. the reason I say that is because um, I could see a, a scenario where you launch a free tier of the WWE Network here in the U.S., where essentially it's an ad-supported tier and you get access to live streaming of the WWE Network, but it does not include the pay-per-views. So you don't get any on-demand content, or if you do, it's a very, very, very small amount of on-demand content. You know, every month we'll make these 10 programs available for free. And then you get access to the streaming channel, but not the on-demand streaming channel, and, uh, and pay-per-views would be blacked out. I could see that being launched as part of a tiering thing, and then that way you get a whole bunch of people who just watch the free stuff, and then you get some ad dollars from that. And then hopefully you're starting that conversion factor of, of collecting email addresses and other things that you can start you know, getting those upgrades. Um, and it's my belief that like, not, that's something they're, they're really considering and they realistically plan to do someday. I think so. When I look at the way other streaming channels work, you know, if you go to Con TV, uh, you can watch certain things for free. And then if you want to watch these other things, you have to pay for it. And, and so many of these channels are structured that way where they'll give you certain things for free. And then if you want, you know, even the History Channel or something like that will have some episodes that you can watch for free with ad-supported things, and then you have to sign into your TV provider if you want more. So I could see them setting that up, and then almost, you know, with different providers, you know, having having different deals, where in the UK, maybe through Sky, you can get this, and through Rogers, you can get this. And it would be very similar to kind of the way they have it set up with those providers already. But I could see them not doing that everywhere in the world, because I, I do think it's tough for them to sell those ad dollars other places in the world. Um, because you don't necessarily, as a U.S. based advertising company, you definitely want that Ford truck commercial to play, right? But do you really care if people in India see that commercial, or is that just inflating numbers the way it does on YouTube? So I, I think there's that element where they would they would want to geo block that, and so that tiering there, I could see maybe not doing that in other countries of the world. Um, I I don't think it's a big obstacle for them, just because 75% of their subscriptions are still based in U.S., and an even higher percent are based in North America, if you include Canada, and if you really go out on a limb and want to include Mexico. So I think since the majority of the marketplace is here, whatever they do is going to be what is good for this marketplace. The last thing I'll add is uh, I thought it was really interesting that announcement they did a couple weeks ago with that sports agency that they're partnering with, and they're really explicit how it did not involve their uh, commitments in China. 
And then a couple weeks later, they announced the WWE Network in China. I think that says a little bit about kind of the the structuring of events and when they knew things were happening. Okay. So you think the, this has been in the works for a while and maybe it was just being finalized in the last few weeks or so? Yeah, I mean... Which I guess it's how like most deals go, but yeah. Yeah, I, I think the fact that they had a Wall Street Journal article with an interview with the people in WWE the same day come out, that says a lot about yeah. you know their ability to plan ahead on what, what the signaling they want. And from a market standpoint, the stock rallied on Thursday, went up from like about 2075 to 2125. It decreased to about 21 even by the end of the week. And this high of $21 and some change is still below the $22, $23 that the stock had back in February and April. So they got a huge stock rise out of this, but it was not a enormous rally. You know, they went from, like I say, the mid-20s to the mid-21s. It was not like the shut-up to $25 or $26. And a little bit of that has come from that we have seen some of these big um, owners of stock, you know, sell off once or twice in the last quarter here as well. Um, so it's not like a whole bunch of people were just like freaking out over this news. I think WWE could have made it bigger if they really wanted to make it bigger. And they, they in some ways chose not to. So that was their in own In terms choice. of like announcing it with fanfare and all that. Yeah, they could have done a press conference or a. Uh, Which they've a done in the past call. for when they like when they signed all the talent, or I think when they first made the deal with PPTV, they had John Cena there and he's talking in Mandarin and all that. Sure, or even just the fact that like when they signed the NBCU deal, um, their stock plummeted and then they 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 held a call like a day later or two days later because they didn't realize their stock was going to plummet so badly. Mm-hmm. So they have in the past, you know, tried to set up kind of discussion points. Yeah. I was just a little shocked. That because was fun. I, I, wish, I wish they would do that more. The, the emergency conference calls. That was a good oh, time. <laughs> they were good because especially because I think that might have been the European call where where only Vince was on for one point and had to. That might have been it. It was either that or WrestleMania, and these it's around the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the WrestleMania call was also crazy this year. Yeah, with the the absurdity of of that. But um, back to Robin's question: Do we think price variation internationally will make tearing the network more difficult or insignificant obstacle? No, just because um, I think for the tearing, they'll just announce local tearing prices. Um, it will be interesting if the tearing is essentially UK indies, <laughs> because you know the only thing we've really heard about them being able to tear is the idea that they are buying indies from or indie footage from like the UK and they're setting up some kind of territory around that. So I do think they would have to come up with some tiering specific for the United Kingdom, because if you're going to put content together, that is mostly going to be attractive to that marketplace or the highest attraction will be that marketplace. Then you definitely would have to have a deal in place for how you tiered in the UK. But uh, for the rest of the world, I don't know whether they would bother or not. For so I'm looking at the 8k, for the most recent uh, quarterly report, and, and they said for the third quarter of 2017, they're projecting an average paid subscribers of 1.54 million. Do you think yeah. this changes anything? No. That's plus or minus 2%, by the way. But yeah, nothing, yeah. It's, it's not going to be significant in, in Q3 to their subscriber count. Yeah, and so I was thinking about it that, because so we're halfway through Q3 now, right? Because Q3 is July, August, September. Right, and it's going to end on uh, September 30th. Yeah, so we you get a let's say you got a hundred thousand more today. Is that going to offset the more than hundred thousand people that they're basically thinking they're going to lose? Probably. Uh, I mean, probably not. Uh, I, I think whether or not it goes up or down is going to have a lot more to do with whether SummerSlam connects with people enough in a way that they want to keep the service. And uh, you know, TV ratings where they are, 
Nakamura versus Jinder, Brock versus Joe versus, you know, this is Yad, yada, da. I, th- I think they're doing a decent build to SummerSlam. I don't think they're going to necessarily be hurting for su- subscribers. I think they've been pretty good at guessing um, their sub numbers ever since they went to average paid and stopped going to where they would end the quarter. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think uh, I don't think this China deal is going to put a big dent in it. Like I said, I would be shocked if by year end they even had 100,000 subscribers in China. So if we're talking about, you know, the margin of error, we're talking about the Flow Slam margin of error right now. Yeah. Of uh, all the subscribers for Flow Slam or the 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 glint in the eye of the WWE network really. The the subscriber count is about as big as the margin of error. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um let's talk this Disney Bam Tech uh situation. Uh it's kind of interesting the announcement by Disney and just the freaking out that everyone has taken with it. I was not that shocked by this, but the rest of the world seems to have been really bowled over by this announcement. And it surprised me because I'm also reading the really hyperbolic um, commentaries on the tech websites where they're like, oh, no, streaming is becoming cable 2.0. This is a big mistake, yada, yada, yada. So MLBAM um, basically uh, was the Major League Baseball advanced media. And then they had two sort portions of their business, as I understood them. They kind of had a digital marketing business, and then they had a a their streaming business. And their streaming business became the backbone for the WWE Network because um, Bob – oh, God, what's his name? Bob something. He was the um, head of MLBAM, and uh, he used to even be a WWE uh, a member of the, the board uh, back Bob in the day. Bob Bowman. Bob Bowman, thank you. Bob Bowman, um, who just stepped down kind of as the CEO uh, at the end of the last year. But uh, he he was very close with WWE years back. So it wasn't a big surprise that they chose them as the backbone for their WWE network, which in a lot of ways was a good decision because then you don't have to build that entire infrastructure of a streaming service yourself. And so WWE, I'm sorry, Disney already spent more than a billion dollars uh, last year on buying a portion of MLB AM. And so what they basically did now is they added a whole bunch more to that. And so they bought a, a larger percentage of the pay. Uh, so they now have a majority of it, if I'm not mistaken. And what they're doing with this is that they're now trying to uh, not only use this service as the backbone, but they can, they want to start their own ESPN OTT service and they want to start their own kind of Disney OTT service uh, or at least a, expand their Disney OTT service. And part of that would also re- mean they would take off of Netflix a lot of the Disney-owned content um, when the deals come due. So I think right now, for instance, you can go watch Rogue One, and in a few years from now, those movies would no longer be going to Netflix, but would instead be going to the Disney service. And then, of course, they're also doing this ESPN service. And did, they want Did you create... watch Rogue One recently on Netflix? I watched it last night. On, on Netflix? Yeah. Yeah? How was it? Yeah. Um... I was less impressed than I think everyone else was. Yeah. <laughs> I found it like a video game cutscenes. It was just like, here we are here. Here we are here. Here we are here. Uh, look at these people. Oh, they're all dead. Oh, this is happening. Oh, look at this. It just it was very frenetic for me. Mm. Um, I haven't seen it, was, it at all. It's, it's, it's not wrestling related, so I guess I haven't turned it on. But, but uh, Disney wants to create the Netflix of sports. They literally said that about this ESPN app. And 
there would be some things about, you know, if you have a cable subscription, you could watch your ESPN or ESPN2 over the web. And then there would be monthly subscribers for this online sports programming. Though they've had to kind of point out that they, they wouldn't necessarily be mirroring the ESPN content on this ESPN OTT service because um, they have different deals in place, obviously, for streaming. And, and the way, you know, I'm sure when they, when they bought the rights to a lot of these things, they did not buy the streaming rights. They bought the, you know, live television rights, which are very different. And they want and to then, launch this by early 2018, they said. And this has got, got to be, and they're talking about ESPN, they got to be talking about doing live streaming here because it's sports. You know, you're not going to build a sports OTT service around video on demand, right? Yeah. I mean, they said 10,000 live streaming, live sports events, Major League Baseball, hockey, soccer, tennis. Um, if I was Flow Slam, I'm sorry, if I was Flow Sports, yeah. I would be you know, talking to them every day about when are you going to buy my service? Yeah. Because uh, if if you want a natural connection, that would probably be the easiest for them to kind of get in and have, you know, a, a big content library that they would be able to access and deal with that might help them a lot. So, you know, you could see a impact of Flow Slam from all of this just from the fact that, um, you know, Flow Slam might get caught up in this deal somehow who knows um someone should interview someone from flow sports or flow slam and ask them what they think about this this big uh espn service coming up yeah i mean that was just a thought i had just now i I wasn't thinking about this for a long time so i I wonder if i I could be way off base in terms of you know what they would be using and obviously i don't think that is the key to an espn service that's going to be highly highly successful Mm -hmm. but i think that if i was fighting in that market space and this guy's coming in um if I'm a entrepreneur that's willing to sell, this would be a good time to sell, mm-hmm. in my opinion. Um, what will be interesting is, you know, they've said this could have a big impact on the the Netflix of the world, who would be losing a a big uh, glut of content that they right now would consider really premier content that has made Netflix appear so positive and strong. You know, you don't find it on HBO. You're not getting it on Amazon. This this new high rated Disney content is showing up on Netflix because of that deal. And so it's going to um, hurt them for sure. And it could be part of their decision making around where they want to invest. And we're seeing Netflix, you know, kind of respond in different ways where the Netflix just went out and bought a comic book pu- publishers, which is kind of, you know, bizarre. On Monday, they announced it um, that they're buying Miller World. And it was this guy who, you know, he worked on Kick-Ass and Kingsman and Old Man Logan. And it's it's Netflix's first acquisition and will give the streamer a solid exclusive portfolio of characters and stories as the company looks to work more closely with filmmakers and acquire intellectual property. So as they see, you know, we're losing probably this big Marvel thing. We need our own comic book characters because they've been really popular on our service. How can we do that? And they want to make Netflix originals and superhero, antihero, fantasy, sci-fi, and horror stories. So we don't know the terms of those deals, but that was kind of an interesting move in my point about how, we're seeing all these OTT services go upstream to the creators and try to own those rather than going downstream to the distributors and trying to buy the rights to redistribute something. And uh, uh, it, it will be interesting to see a lot of people freaking out over this thing here. I don't think it's really, you know, we always thought there was coming some kind of a, you know, Netflix of sports. And I think ESPN makes the most sense in terms of a um, entity that's going to try to build themselves out of it. Uh, at the same time, I do not think that Raw and SmackDown are going to a streaming service in 2019. I'll say it again. 
you're not getting Raw and SmackDown on your WWE network, at least not within the next few years. Not, not. It's just the 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 revenue stream, the subscribership, and the ad dollars are just not nearly at the same rates as what they are on on traditional television. At best, you would get a second screen type experience where it would be on this, and then also another service. But I they, they I did that see. early in the network, didn't they? There was the second screen experience while you watch Raw or SmackDown. Yeah, I mean, while they went to commercial breaks, you would get yeah. the 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 thing. I think uh, increasingly. They've been kind of told that we want you to keep those eyeballs on our service and on our our proprietary our proprietary uh, uh, network rather than on a second screen or surface. Yeah. And um, we, you we know, want people... you to watch the commercials, not be looking at your tablet or phone. Yeah, and and we've seen you know SmackDown experiment with these idea of doing kind of picture in picture commercials and things right. like that the way that so that they can you know try try and bridge that gap a little bit better and then of course people were freaking out when of course during was it seeing the Nakamura they did the commercial break right and, and there was no you know, screen but the reason for that is is you you have those people's eyeballs that's the best time to do it you know yeah. is you, that you don't have to do it as badly then. Yeah, exactly. You're not worried about losing those viewers because they're already tuned in. Yeah. And also it's it's going to help your ratings there because there is certain there's certain metrics that are done that only involve through the end of a commercial break, like the last commercial break that a television service has. I was reading about, you know, the different ways that that uh channels kind of screw with their their Nielsen ratings by submitting different names for their programs and whatnot. And one thing they mentioned right. was like that your ratings only counted through the last commercial break you had of the night. Oh, really? Yeah, and so they're even like in certain shows, if they don't take, you know, if they like SNL after this last thing, that last segment doesn't get counted because there's no commercial break. Hmm. And so, you know, it was kind of similar to when, you know, WWE has the huge overrun. I don't know if that that would affect it or not, because it wouldn't technically be part of their their normal commercial, you know, runtime. So mm-hmm. it would be interesting to look. And the other thing with Raw and SmackDown being on the network is that we're not in a media environment yet where I think that's viable, uh, where it's viable to do that because you still need an avenue where you're going to create new fans from. You still need to be on a big package that everybody's, pretty much everybody in the, I don't know, in the country is buying, like cable TV. Um, you need to be able to call your friend and say Goldberg is back on television, yeah, turn to USA turn Network. It on, check it out. And and like YouTube maybe could be that, but again, that's not live and and YouTube's a much smaller portion of a much smaller number of people are watching a given segment on YouTube versus the few million people who are watching it live on the USA network in this country. Um, and it makes me think of like, how does, I was watching, you know, the G1 climax is happening this weekend and I'm you know, sort of having this thought to myself here. You got, you know, 7,000 people in the sumo hall. Like where is, and we're going to get sidetracked here, but we're going to talk about new Japan eventually anyway, but like, where does new Japan, build new fans. I know they have a, a TV program on T- TV Asahi and that's supposedly at like four o'clock in the morning. So, and I wonder, are, are people really watching that TV show? And is that really the entry point for a lot of new fans for, you know, native Japanese fans who are uh, become fans of new Japan or are they connecting with the product in, in some other way? Maybe it's a good question to ask like Chris Charlson or, or yeah. um, someone I would, I would be curious too is, is what is it, that gives the exposure to people of who they are and right. is it as simple as you know the joey ryan penis suplex which is you know it goes viral people find out about it they see it and it just happens you know and because... we know new japan is on i think the uh what the satellite version of tv asahi 
but that's we we know that you know cable and satellite isn't very popular it's available but it's not very popular in in japan something like 10 or 20 percent of the country has access to it so there's longer form new japan and and, and you know broadcast on i think it's bs asahi or at least it was and uh and then here in the U.S., of course, it's Access, AXX. Right. And, you know... Which, I, which I guess just... is like... it's like So what we see on Access is like the English language version of the Japanese version of what they see on the satellite channel, as I understand it. And and I think Dave just had the latest numbers for how many homes had all the different shows. And I think it was like USA Network was something around 91 million homes, whereas something like Access was like 45 million homes. Uh, I know I don't have access to it where I am. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, you have access and... to it. You just have to sign up for Sling. Yeah, that's true. I would have to sign up for a streaming service, and at yeah. that point, why, not, why would I just not sign up for New Japan? Yeah. Um, but you yeah, signed up, you, you signed up for New Japan at the beginning, right? Nope. No, never you, you've never been an NJPW World subscriber. I've never. Oh, I've wow. never because I, I don't have a Chromecast, mm. so I, it, I it is a pain. One. So I, I I watch it. So I have an Apple TV, and I have an, an iPhone, and I I try to Apple TV it or whatever, AirPlay it to to the Apple TV, and then but then. You'll watch it for like a half an hour, and then for whatever reason, the Apple TV connection will just break, and then I'll have to set it up again. So it's it's kind of a pain in the ass. As we were talking about last uh, last week, there really needs to be a technological advancement to help out these OTT services to make it really seamless and easy to watch these services right on my TV, and we're not there yet. I think the last time I watched a streaming service pay-per-view was I went to um, when Brody Lee was wrestling Aki Bono for oh, wow that's a, a match that happened yeah it was, wow. i think it was dragon gate usa it must have been and dragon I, gate I, usa or dragon gate japan no it was dragon gate usa um and uh they did the whole because it was with um like the city and portal and so they did the whole like hypnotize and then akibono did the dance with them all and wow. uh and yeah i think it was, in fact i think it was even akibono's idea to do it to like get into such a comical match um but yeah that that happened. I think that was the last time. So that was probably good six years ago. Um, that, that was through w, uh, WWN? Uh, WWN or I don't remember. Was there something before WWN? Like another service they used? Not for Evolve or DGUSA. Okay. That's, that's then, the, the parent. Yeah. So, I mean, we have come a long way compared to WWN to where we are now. You know, it, I would say we have seen a upgrade of our ability to get streaming wrestling content. Um. But there's a long way to go. Let's talk about New Japan for a second. Um, well, first, let's, uh, let's just say if you if you Google the most illegal thing I've seen in wrestling history with a fat guy, you will get the clip of what we're talking about here. But, but anyway, oh, is we'll, that in fact Aki Bono dancing? I, I believe so. I've watched like ten seconds of it, but that's pretty. That's what it looks like it's going to be. <laughs> I thought I remember that one. Yeah, it's the Syrian Portal versus Aki Bono and Brody Lee. Yep, from that 2000, is 2011. Yeah. What were you going to ask um, me? <laughs> I was going to ask you, as a New Japan Climax attendance, uh, what is your estimates? Uh, about 80,000. We've got one more show to go as we record this right now. Uh, Kenny this is Omega. for full G1 Climax attendance, so yeah, over all for, the nights. For all the, all the entire tour. It's a 19-event tour. It, ha- it was this year, it was in 2016, and it was in 2015 as well. It's been this 19-event uh, tour. And in 2015, it was about 70,000. In 2016, last year, it was about 74,000. And this year, we've got one more event to go, and it's probably going to draw about 10,000 people on the final night at the Sumo Hall. And that would give it a total of 80,000. And, of course, all these numbers come from the NJPW, uh, the New Japan official website. And we believe that these are legitimate paid uh, numbers. Uh, So says uh, Mr. Kadani. 
Um, and and the gimmick here is that the final night attendance is pretty similar to the other years. It's the night, the 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 block finals and whatnot that is is the difference, right? Yeah, the the final night has a larger setup, so they make more seats available than they do on the on the the first two nights at the Sumo Hall. And again, for the, since for 2015, 16, and 17, they've done three three nights at the Sumo Hall to end the the G1 climax. And the first two nights do five or seven thousand, and then the last night does about ten thousand. But this year, uh, the the first two nights both did a, about seventy five hundred each. And and again, with a bigger setup uh, tomorrow night, I expect it to be around ten thousand. The the vibe I get this from the sounds of it, it, it sounds like the sales are going pretty well. Although the ticket prices are way higher, so that they, the the uh, the G one final night didn't sell out as fast, and it may not even be sold out at the moment. Uh, so it, it sold out like weeks in advance last year. The final night did. But it did not sell out as fast, and it may not even be sold out now. But I think the attendance is still going to be pretty strong. It's going to be so comparable kind of like to prior years. The WWE model of right. we just keep raising the ticket prices, right. and we're okay with you know ninety percent capacity because we'll make more money than we did a year ago. Right. Sure. Sure. Well, and you know, uh, that we should note that, too the the Friday night. Um, this past Friday, they this is this was the event with Tanahashi and Naito. Uh, they did about 7,500, and that was higher than the first night, the Friday night. And this again, same same weekdays too. It's Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and so the 7,500 that they did on Friday night was higher than about the 65 or 6,600 they did in 2016, and higher than about the 5,700 they did in 2015. And that was even while that Friday was it was August 11th, and that's like Mountain Day, I think, or something like that in Japan, which is Japanese holiday. So you'd think that maybe the attendance would suffer because it was on a holiday, but actually the attendance was. Uh, a thousand or two more than it had been in, in the last two years. And this, I think, goes with what I was saying last week, which was I do think having Tanahashi there is a big plus. And if he had not been part of the tournament this year, mm-hmm. it, it's questionable whether they would have been able to break their attendance record year over year. Yeah. Um, so and he, he's got that, that bicep injury that maybe you should take some time off for, but he's not. Yeah. And, you know, I, I've heard Dave Meltzer talking a lot lately about the idea of sw- switching G1 into almost a four-block model yeah. and, you know, giving all the guys a little bit more rest. And I think that's the challenge with something like this, which is you don't really have a model right now where you can necessarily run more shows unless you change the format of what you're offering because this is about the most the guys can give you um, yeah. in terms of singles matches. And, you know, you have 10 guys in every block. That's a ton so it yeah. would be interesting if they do decide to go to a four-block model. And, and, and I've heard Dave say that. I, I think, like, I don't know, as a wrestler, I've never, obviously, I've never done a, a schedule like this where you're wrestling uh, world-class matches where you're you're having, what is, like, I guess nine nine matches because there's ten people in the block, right, over the course of two or three weeks. So I, I, I'm sure it's very demanding. Nine on the, singles, but then you're also doing tags. And, and you're doing tags, and which aren't going to be as demanding, but still, yeah. Um, I, I would be interested in what the wrestlers think. Of course, they're not going to say if they're unhappy with it or they think it's too hard. They're not going to say so publicly. It's something you would only get by talking to them privately, I guess. Absolutely, I agree with you there. Which is, um, this is looking at it from the outside and saying what's the best way to do it, and it's hard to judge what is going to be the the most um, valuable to the wrestlers in terms of what they feel like their body's getting beat up on. Yeah, and and you're always going to have wrestlers who are like who are going to do. Th- things that are not in their body's best interest but i would still i would think if if a lot of wrestlers would would give you the feedback that yeah this would be great if 
if, if they did give you the feedback that, yeah, this would be great if it was a little more drawn out and there were maybe fewer matches. Um, I, I would like the idea of the four blocks just from a, a, a booking standpoint and from a stats standpoint because I think it would be neat to be able to say which tour is the strongest, which one's the weakest. I think the challenge is, you know, that's like saying let's have four shows. Uh, it's tough enough to have an A show and a B show on WWE when they're touring. And, you know, if you want to do four of them, it's tough to put the right stars on each of them and not have it be wildly unbalanced until you're, you know, Juice Robinson is headlining a tour or something. Yeah, I, th- I think the risk on the opposite end, I mean, uh, the risk on, on, on this end is you're wearing down your talent too much and causing them injuries, which is obviously very concerning. But I think the concern on the other end is, well, does this water down the product? Are we going to, are are the draws going to suffer if we only have, you know, uh, you know, two or three or four G1 Climax matches instead of maybe, five or whatever. Maybe you have a block that's only in Fukushima and Luke Loki has to headline the whole time. There you go. I think someone, was it was it Tomatonga was talking about how there should be two, or, or was it uh, Rich Thomas from that Rich Thomas article where he said maybe you could have a, one block in the U.S. and another block in Japan or something like that. I think that would be a great idea. Yeah, um, maybe someday, yeah. yeah. I I just think it would be fun, you know, because I think that's a great way to kind of offset if you don't have a strongest block is that, you you know, you bring over some Japanese guys, you give them, put them on the West Coast, have them do a little tour and they'll have pretty hot crowds the whole time. Yeah. So, no, it's not a bad idea. Speaking of, of great attendance, tell me about GFW. Uh, GFW ran two house shows, which which would be. If we're, we're talking about the TNA lineage, it'd be the, it's been a while since TNA uh, has ran a house show and now they're called gfw but they ran uh on august 4th in st james new york which i have no idea where st james new york is even though i've lived in new york state all my life do you know where st james new york is sure do it's on uh google maps <laughs> it's on my google maps too let's see where uh, this place is uh, oh you know it's um oh god it's nowhere <laughs> is it nowhere <laughs> kind of uh it's, it's it's on long island is it really yeah Oh, okay. This map I'm looking at here, I couldn't tell at all. Okay, so they ran... Oh, yeah, 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 it's Long Island. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, first of all, we should point out, so they were going to run this, you know, three-day house show tour from August 4th, going through August 5th to August 6th, and that's a Friday, Saturday, Sunday. The August 6th date for Sunday in, in Bridgeport, Connecticut was canceled, according to the Observer, due to logistic issues and unforeseen circumstances, which Dave speculated was because of a poor advance. Um, so on August 4th, on the Friday, uh, they ran St. James in, uh, it looks like about 330 people were there. And we got, we got a photo in, in the dock that we're looking at. And there's, you know, it looks like, I don't know, a typical indie show, I guess, in terms of the size. Just some seats on the floor surrounding the ring. Mostly filled, but, you know, a typical indie show, which is not what I would uh, expect from a promotion that's uh, on, on national TV that draws hundreds of thousands of viewers. Um, yeah. And then the next day on, on the Saturday on August 5th, they ran Staten Island, New York at a, at a baseball uh, stadium and drew about 650, according to the Observer. And then we got uh, Gurick.net uh, posted some, some pictures of, the, uh, of what the baseball stadium looked like, and it looks pretty sparsely attended, uh, according, according to the, the report uh, from that website. It says the ringside seats, seats, which had around 250 seats, were not even half full. And in the stands, you could see some small pockets of fans scattered around. So, yeah, maybe it was 650. But it, it's always a bad look when you got these these baseball park shows, and you know it's such a big stadium, and you've got like maybe they did have 650 people 
there, but they're so spread out across this giant venue. And of course, you got the the baseball diamond behind the ring. It's just this big, wide open space. So the crowd is only on one side. And even though the crowd is only on one side, they're still spread, you know, so far apart. It just looks so small. But yeah. So there you go. You got GFW running their first house shows. I'm guessing these were paid shows that Jeff Jarrett or whoever GFW got paid for in advance, and then they just ran them. And it, and to to the wrestling company, it's not so important. At least they're not going to lose money. I mean, you know, if they if they draw a small house and the you know the baseball team or the baseball stadium is is the one that's going to take the hit if this loses money. Yeah, for sure. Do you so, ever hear about the ballpark brawls? Were you around for any of that? Yeah, I went to one. Mm. Uh, I saw. Was, was that the first? I mean, I guess there must be similar things going way back, but that was the first I'd I'd heard of of running a wrestling show like after a baseball game or you know on a baseball. Well, obviously in Puerto Rico they run lots of baseball yeah. stadiums uh, yeah. for wrestling shows. Do they and run them, heard... Do they run them in conjunction? I wonder was was this? I don't know, but like the Staten Island show was this run in conjunction? I guess you might not know, but was this run in conjunction with like a minor league baseball game? It might have been. But that's what the ballpark I, I, brawl concept was, which is something that happened here in Buffalo. And it, it might have been one of the early – there might have been some that did it before, but that's the first time I had heard of it where they had this yeah, idea I where, mean, where, it's like a, where it's like a bonus thing after the baseball game. It's part of the attraction, I think, that the, that the baseball team or stadium uses to, to market the game. Say, hey, after the, come to the game, and after the game there's going to be this wrestling thing. And that's the way they And it was surprising it. how much they would spend on that. I mean, oh, I, yeah. they had a killer deal because they would – I remember one time I went there and they had brought in like 10 guys, like oh, Foley yeah. and Virgil. And um, this might have been before uh, Stryker was part of WWE, but he was there. And, how many big uh, ballpark brawls were you at? One, two? Maybe two. Yeah. yeah I, went, I, went, I went to one. I remember Brody Lee wrestled like Damian Steele or something. In a weird match, I think Abyss was on the show. Oh and yeah, he was. Maybe even did like a thumbtack bump or something really crazy. I remember, and I, I I went to the show, and yeah, I'd say there's maybe a couple hundred of us, couple maybe at most a thousand or so, and and sometimes they would run with a couple thousand. I think, you know, you'd get it was kind of like a deal where you buy the baseball ticket and then you also got the ballpark brawl. Exactly, I don't yeah. think they were separate. So I think you know, then I remember, they did one in Rochester. Do you remember that? Where and I think it was. A, at, at some point, they they tried to sell a separate ticket. Like, there were a number of ballpark brawls that were at the end of baseball games, and then they tried to run one that was just by itself. And I think that's the one that did a pretty weak attendance in Buffalo. But anyway, I'm all over the place. I know, I know that they did one in, in Rochester because I was at it. Exactly, and and you know, people were asking the other day about like which indies draw you know a lot in the u.s and you know new northeast wrestling yeah um i think they use maybe even uh, arenas or something um similar and they they oftentimes will book load it up with you know x stars and and do yeah. pretty well that, that's the vision so, i have in my head of what northeast wrestling is it's like you know they're they're booking the cody Rhodes and the alberto del rios and ray mysterios of the world and they're and john morrison and they're and they're doing it like at baseball stadiums what what is this progress show that's going on in queens is it progress or is it a progress like show or what is it? it it's progress coming over to to the u.s for for at least one show so they're as we record this uh in, in like an hour the evolve show is going to start in the same venue and they just ran evolve last night i believe in the, in, in the same venue as well um so there's like an afternoon evolve show and then in the evening there's a progress show and the, so the progress promoter is jim smallman he, he tweeted out the other day that he's basically saying that he expects 1500 people to be there and this is in Queens, New York, by the way, or maybe just outside Queens in Corona, New York. Um, 
So, so are you surprised? Because you know, progress is obviously something that's not on American television. No, it's not on any television, in fact, or at least any traditional television. So I think it's interesting to contrast. Look at the performance, the attendance performance of GFW, which has Impact Wrestling, which is on Pop TV, which is is viewed by what you know, three hundred thousand people a week, more or less, on average. And then you've got Progress, which has has no mainstream exposure. It's not on TV in the U.S. or the U.K. You can go to Demand Progress, their their VOD site, and you can follow it. And uh, and if he's right, I mean, he's a promoter, so he may be exaggerating. But it looks like this this Progress promotion is going to do you know a lot more, maybe twice as much, maybe you know three times as much of an attendance as GFW demonstrated it was capable of uh, of drawing. So but I, I mean, it, isn't yeah, isn't that coming down to the fact that we're just out of stars left in GFW as they've done so much cost cutting? I mean, if the Hardys were on the show, I think it would draw more. You know, yeah. we're down to James Storm and um, well, Gail Kim, the, the Robbie E. Uh, I don't even think Magnus is still working with them. Jesse Goddard's uh, Eddie yeah, Edwards, Ethan Carter the Third. Um, uh, Ethan Carter III, Madison Rain, Davey Richards, uh, DJZ, uh, occasionally ODB, uh, Rockstar Spud, Abyss, Lashley, though, you know, even Lashley, I don't know whether he's doing the house show loops, uh, Bram, um, Angelina Love, uh, Hardy's Gone Crazy Steve, Tyrus. So if you're a big Brodus Clay fan, you can see him and, you know, even Drew Galloway's gone, uh, Eli Drake. Uh, Matt Morgan started showing up again this year, which is was weird. Uh, Trevor Lee and Jade, and uh, you know, you know who it is though. The guy that's making people show up is Maher Bali Shara. There you go. The, so the main event for it looks like both shows here for the fourth and the fifth were so the exact same match: James Storm, John Hennigan, who's uh, John Morrison, and who Moose. doesn't even appear on their television. Right. So he's like a Lucha Underground special guest. Uh, so James Storm, John John Hennigan, and Moose defeated. Eli Drake, Ethan Carter the Third, and Bobby Lashley. Okay, and, so Lashley uh, was a slightly different main event that included Loki instead of Eli Drake on the other night. So, but I, but I, I think there is something to be said that you know the the heyday of TNA with a lot of these people you can see them in NXT now or they've moved on. You know, there's no more Daniels, there's no more Joe, there's no more Angle, there's no more Kazarian, there's no more Eric. I guess Austin Aries could show back up there. Uh, and Bobby Roode's gone. You know, there's a lot of guys. AJ Styles is gone. There's a lot of guys that I think at the time that made TNA what it was are gone. Mm-hmm. And so you're left with this collection of, of people. But I don't think Ethan Carter III is a draw. I think he's a guy, much in the same way a lot of indie guys are a guy. And, uh, uh, you know, it's not necessarily going to bring people out. I do think the novelty of, of progress with kind of the big stars that they've been able to build and, and having, you know, some co-promotions with WWE. And, and, and we should big... point out here, you're, you're, you're making a persuasive argument to me here and softening my, my stance as I came in here. But the, the advertised main event, I, I've just heard this morning that Pete Dunn is, is injured and maybe isn't going to wrestle on, on the progress show tonight. But they were advertising Jack Gallagher, who's, you know, a 205 Live guy. and He's on Raw sometimes, right? He was going to wrestle Pete Dunn, and Jack Gallagher's still going to wrestle. Uh, and then you've got Walter versus Matt Riddle, and uh, Trent Seven and Tyler Bate against SPPT. Sorry, uh, Brit Rest Wrestling fans, I'm not sure who, who they are. 
but uh, I think that's the point, right? Like I recognized most of the names you named there with Matt Riddle being the exception of the person who I know who he is, but he's made his own name for himself in the indie scene right now. And, you know, I, I do think when TNA had even the Hardys or 3D or other teams like that, they could rely back on those people had a lot of cachet cachet that they could kind of bank on. And we're down to the point where we, you know, was Jeff Jarrett even on the GFW show? No, Jeff Jarrett's not appearing on G- uh, GFW TV or Impact Wrestling, is he? I, I don't think the so. window, sorry. <laughs> no, it's all right. But I just mean that's my point is it's like yeah. it, when you when you moneyball what you're doing, you risk losing stars. And wrestling has proven one thing, which is for the most part, stars and novelty is what draws, right? Um, I would and... think TV exposure helps, though. Like the the maxim that I got from reading old observers was, if you're gonna, if you want to start a promotion, you want to, you know, make a lot of money from having live events. Well, you got to get on TV so that people sit at home and for free, or basically for free, you know, sit on their couch and, and watch your TV, and then get into into your guys as stars, or get into the matches or whatever, or in 2017, get into the brand, whatever it is, and then they see a match advertised, and then they get up off their couch and they get in the car and they go to the live event. I think if we treat every live event as being the same, sure. But, like, why did Onita draw for CZW? Mm-hmm. Well, because it was Onita. Did they have television to do that? No, because the group of people that care about that are X amount of people, and that meant something. Yeah. And so there's a difference between, you know, a spot show built around a certain star and a touring show that is a house show loop, right? So you, you do have different reasons that different people come out, and you have maximum number. Like, Onita can draw 1,000 people in the U.S. Maybe he can do that even a couple times, but he can't draw 10,000 people in the U.S. That's just not going to happen. Right. Versus the Hardys, who, you know, have been able to be big draws, or even the Young Bucks, or, you know, Kenny Omega coming to Chicago is going to be a big draw. And, you know, I 10,000, that's still a very high mark. I don't know if they could do it, but... You know, I, I have some faith that they would be a little bit closer to it. And so there, there's different audiences that come from different reasons. But I agree with you. Television helps a lot. I, I think mean, TNA WWE has a hard enough time so drawing. Little. WWE has a hard enough time drawing 10,000. I think the average attendance for a Raw is something like 9,000, maybe 10,000. Yeah, I mean, the the average, like we, we looked at, the average attendance for a North American Q2 was like 6,600. And that includes a WrestleMania number. And when you take WrestleMania out, it's down to like 5,500. Um, Jeff Jarrett was not on either of these shows, by the way. Okay. So I, I just mean that element, too, which is, you're right, television means something, but, you know, to, uh, Glow proved that television meant people will watch it, but they won't go out and pay for it. Um, how, how much do you think it matters that GFW is, you know, the rebranded TNA, which is a damaged and toxic brand? Uh, I think... I don't think it's a new novel thing. <laughs> I I think it's much easier to, to connect to a local indie than it is to connect to GFW right now. Um, I why, think GFW why is that? Could, because I think at least a local indie, you have you know some kind of local promotion or connection to the stars of that time, or you have uh, wrestlers who are being told to sell tickets to their friends and family. Yeah, but I mean, hey, if it works, it works, right? Yeah. Um, versus, you know, it, I think if we got stories that the people were tearing the house down on these gfw house shows the way that they were a couple years ago right people's attitudes would change if they had stars that you can't see anywhere else people's attitudes would change so you know if if you found out that muda or even sonata was coming in 
and you knew, oh my god, I really want to see this guy. He's from Japan and he's here for a little while. That's different. But um, you know, who's their partner now? Wrestle One. Uh, Noah. Noah. Yeah. Wrestle One so, was that was the, the previous Japanese uh, relationship. But they they've made a they had a Naomichi Marafuji Naomichi Marafuji uh, recently. I think on their last pay per view. Yeah. So I mean, if Marafuji was at a house show, I'd definitely go to see a house show with Marafuji. But uh, you know, uh, Braxton Stutter doesn't do it for me. Um, let's uh, uh, you know, someone asked me a question that I thought was an interesting perspective. Uh, what was more popular in the '90s at the boom period of wrestling, comic books or wrestling? And at the, at the beginning of the '90s, or the the end of the '90s, the during end of the 90s. kind of the boom of wrestling but also actually a time when comic books were doing pretty decently as well in the mid 90s and so someone asked me that and i was looking at it and i was saying you know what the revenue that wcw and wwf generated in 99 and 2000 was probably higher than the sales that came from comic book sales but the downstream licensing revenue from comic books, if you included shirts and movies and television shows and everything else. Action probably, figures. Yeah. Was, or or uh, collectible card games and mm. other things was probably higher. So I think there was probably more people that were out watching wrestling on a regular basis than there were people going to comic book stores and buying comic books in the U.S. But I think the revenue was probably a little bit higher for wrestling on a company basis, but lower on a licensing basis. Um, now, you know, when you think about how much money, you know, Marvel and, and people make through their, you know, entertainment ventures, it's, it dwarfs what wrestling does. But it's interesting, just kind of that, that perspective of which was bigger at the time, because they both kind of had big heydays, and they have a lot of crossover fans between the two of kind of, you know, these fandoms that are very passionate and, and spend money and, and are very critical of the creators and uh, the turnover of talent over time and the evolution of characters and, and everything else that went on and, and people, you know, breaking off to start their own companies and overspending and underspending and underappreciating their talent. So I, I, I it's always interesting to me, and I definitely have, um, you know, even among my wrestling fans, I have like a subgroup that's a big comic book fan group and then people like me who have no interest in comic books, really. And so it's it's really intriguing to me. And of course, the the whole world of comic books is very different. You know, if I think if we included Magna and everything in our uh, calculations, that would dwarf the wrestling uh, numbers, even in the 90s, if you included the whole Japanese market at the time. But in the U.S., like to like, I would think wrestling's a little bit bigger. And I was looking at some numbers and I found some, you know, calculations for comic book sales to kind of justify why I was coming up with this. But um, it's it just kind of an interesting question someone asked me. Would you? Did you have any perspective on it? You're the one who did the research. You, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I you know, know, and I my, my, my chief. Uh, and this would be about the end of the '90s. I remember playing like some sort of some sort of X-Men card game. With yeah, my friends. yeah, that Overpower or whatever I think it was. That's what it is. Here I am trying to Google it. And I'm like, what was the name of that? And yeah, I know it because it was so popular at the yeah. time. Yeah, exactly. So kind of, kind of. Wasn't Magic the Gathering, but it was another yeah. kind of you know collectible card game type thing. And That's I great. even think the number of people who went to wrestling events was probably lower than the number of people who were buying comic books regularly. I but so. I think the number of people watching wrestling at the time was a lot more. I mean, we're talking about a year when they did like seven million pay per view buys, and you know television ratings were were enormous at the time. Um, so just just 
wanted to throw that in there since someone asked me, and uh, I thought it was kind of an interesting discussion. And if you have some facts to back us up or, or deny us of our, our victory on this conversation, please feel free to email us at wrestling. If you're, if you're a, a, a comic book historian, uh, maybe if uh, Dragon King Carl Stern is, is listening, uh, there set, us, set us straight. You know, uh, another little piece of analysis I did this uh, week was looking at the word concussion and looking at the Wrestling Observer. And I have a archive I keep where it's all the online issues of the Wrestling Observer since they ever went online. And so I have one big Excel file where it just has all the things in there. So it makes it easy for me to do. You know, when people ask me how many – how much does Dave write about MMA versus wrestling? And what I do is I just kind of crunch the numbers by topic and then, you know, kind of figure out how many lines of data, words of data are in there to do that. And so I I was curious about how many times has the word concussion come up over time? Um, Just because there's so much more talk about it this week and this month and this year and this, this decade, especially. And, you know, I was looking at just, you know, the more recent years from 2008 onwards when we have observers. And what you see is maybe eight times a month, 10 times a month. 2010, it was 21 times a month. Um, I'd have to do a little digging why it was 21 times. And then in 2011, it was 19 times. It might be when uh, the NFL suit was getting really hot. And also with um, the congressional testimony stuff, maybe. I have to think about that a little bit more. Um, And then it dropped down to like 11 times a month in 2012, 21 times a month in 2013. 18 times a month, 2014, 24 times a month, 2015. And then it shoots up to about 37 times a month in 2016. And of course, that's all the Daniel Bryan stuff. And this year, we're, we're at kind of a lower number, about 15 times a month. Uh, if you go, though, historically, uh, somebody did some research for me on some combined observers that they had, uh, some files from tw- 2001 through 2007. 2001, it was like four times a month three times a month, five times a month, five times, five times, four times. And then in 2007, it shoots up to 11 times a month. And that, of course, is when Benoit uh, tragedy happened. Um, And so I think a lot of that was, right? Am I right? 2007 is the right year? That's when Chris Benoit, yes. Yes, it's June 2007. Okay. Okay. So I thought. So Eddie was, of course, 2006, and then Benoit in 2007. Eddie Eddie was like November 2005. Oh, thank you. Yeah. 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 And and so you can see that the number shoots up. And so it's kind of funny. It's this graph where if you look at it, it's about, you know, four times, five times a month. And then in 2007, it shoots up to 11. And then after that, it shoots up to 10 to 20 times a month. And then sometimes up to 40 times a month when like Daniel Bryan retired. And it was just kind of an idea of saying, you know, we did not talk about concussions a lot. I mean, somebody even looked at the 1988 through 1990 issues. And, you know, the references was like one a month or less than one a month. Uh, and it doesn't include every euphemism that's used for concussion, so it doesn't necessarily say knock silly or seemed out of it or all the different phrases that we've used in the past. Mm-hmm. And, of course, with the rise of MMA, there's a lot more of get knocked out or was diagnosed with a concussion because, of course, these guys are getting treatment after their fights. So you're going to see a little bit more of it as well with the MMA coverage. But uh, it, it just kind of intrigued me to see, you know, how did the coverage of concussions change over the last 10 years here? And does, was that reflected in the writing itself? And for the sure, you could kind of put a stake in the ground and say 2007 is when people really changed the way that they started talking about concussions very, very differently. And as you know, more and more research came out and the NFL suit and the hockey suit and all these other lawsuits happened and CTE being diagnosed coming out. Yeah, and I think as a wrestler too, when, when Daniel Bryan retired, that was more of a light bulb for me where like, all right, like, 
and and who knows he may wrestle again maybe maybe he'll be okay maybe he won't i don't know but that was like a big way of call like the things we're doing to our bodies here may may end up causing us to have them you know dementia like symptoms later in life and that's not something that i had ever really strongly considered uh before then i know the, the chris benoit stuff happened and and i think uh what was really positive following that is that I, everybody stopped doing chair shots to the head and whatnot and uh and like when I when I show people how to do things like strikes, I'm always very careful to be like, are right, you strike somebody maybe in the neck, maybe in the trap, but never never above that. And I know some people still throw these punches where they're like, you know, they're throwing punches at, at the forehead and, and whatnot. But I, I really, you know, try to persuade people against that. And in you know when we look at you know the diagnosis of ct over time and whatnot i think it does you know the story has really moved from roid rage to cte type symptoms um with benoit where right. there's less discussion of it that direction than there is about you know does head trauma cause these kind of erratic mood swings and whatnot that also coupled with you know hormonal levels being all over the chart due to steroid abuse and you know other injuries and, and problems and underlying social uh, and mental disorders that are that are going to you know play into this as well. I, I think it's interesting just kind of what we do know about concussion protocols and what we don't. A lot of people were talking about Kenny Omega and Evil this week in their G1 match, where it looked like Evil was knocked out, was given a concussion, or was was knocked loopy, however you want to put it. And, and Kenny and Omega this, like picked him up, like deadlift, stood him up even he's like concussed apparently or at least he was knocked out we don't know if he was concussed or not but and then Kenny Omega gave him the one-winged angel even while he was probably pretty loopy and and a lot of people were saying you know in WWE you would expect the referee to to get the audible or have the permission to step in and say no this person doesn't seem like they're with it we're going to end this match and you know we even saw that television match with Daniel Bryan where he got knocked goof Goofy got looked like he had a concussion, and then Triple H had to come out and reason with him that he was stopping the match. Right. And, or, and uh, even, you know, even, wrestlers even Japan, if they had stopped the match, it wouldn't be that out of the norm to be like, all right, knockout finish. Match. Yeah. Over. So it was. It was. It was a little weird, and you know, he ended up wrestling the next day. And at least in in other companies, you know, we have some idea that there's a protocol right. and that there's some testing and. People have said, oh, you know, he must be all right because he passed the New Japan concussion protocol. And Is there a New Japan I concussion am, protocol? I, I am skeptical. Yeah. I would love if someone can prove me wrong by saying this is, yes, what the uh, the medicine that they have implemented to to test people for concussions. But, you know, uh, even like David Bixenpan made a good point where he's like someone who is concussed is not in a legal state of mind where they can make a good decision. And so you can't just rely on them to make a good decision. Yeah. And that's why we, we create these safeguards. And, you know, um, I actually found an article this month in the uh, Minnesota Bench and Bar magazine that was the, the cover story was litigating sports concussions and was just all about kind of uh, what does the law say about these things? And, you know, who could be at fault for all these different kind of concussion lawsuits? And it was a really interesting piece just talking about, you know, essentially – you have to have some kind of a protocol and, you know, things like impact testing are not uh, uh, gospel. They yeah, don't they're, mean they're that they're not it, foolproof because they rely on a baseline that's done ahead of time. And you can sort of tank the baseline on purpose and give yourself a low baseline so that when you maybe when you actually have a concussion, 
you can try real hard and then you can meet your baseline and then it'll seem like you're okay. And, you know, there's other examples where like we've seen technology that's been coming out where they're talking about using acoustic waves and looking at brain scans and things like that. And and there's just a lot to be said that, you know, there is new advances coming and the idea of just relying on people's guts to say, are you going to be okay, is probably not enough. And we know that now. And we're talking about, you know, Japan. We're not talking about um, you know, an indie show in the middle of Arizona. We're not talking about, you know, uh, unregulated wrestling on some, you know, Middle Eastern tour. We're talking about another sophisticated country that has access to medical technology. And, you know, and they might need to adapt that, with that, the that time. That millions of dollars in revenue per year, and they, they should have the capability to, to manage things like this. Yeah, so it, it's, you know, it's easy to throw um, throw shade on them now, you know, without knowing all the facts. And so I would love to know if they are, you know, what kind of medical conditions they do have. But uh, my my history has not ever led me to believe that there is incredible um, care of wrestlers that is necessarily going on behind the scenes that we're, we're not seeing right now. Yeah, And it seems, um, seems to me, and I've never been in Japan to see what the culture is like, but it seems to me from following Japanese wrestling for a number of years that there's a lot more of a, of a I guess, like a bravery type culture and we see that in things like Tanahashi where Tanahashi might have a, a pretty serious biceps injury that he's not taking care of because he's so dedicated to you know being on this tour for New Japan and toughing it out and this, this goes way back but even the story about Ricky Dozan where he was he was stabbed but he didn't want to tell anybody because he wanted to he, he, like he got stabbed in the bathroom but then he sat back down at the bar and like no sold it you know I guess the point, and, the point you know, is, someone asked me, is, is, oh, a Japanese policy wrestler might, might, you know, some, somebody like Evil might be very apt to say or prone to say, no, I'm fine. Don't, uh, yeah, it's totally fine. I'm wrestling tomorrow. You know, who knows? Someone asked me on Twitter whether there is a wellness policy in uh, New Japan. And obviously, I don't know is the, sh- the short answer. Um, a lot of it is probably going to be dictated by what is legal and not legal in Japanese law. And so it's different, you know, uh, opioids. And methamphetamines and whatnot are incredibly regulated in Japan, uh, much the same way pot is. Whereas, like anabolic steroids, by, by regulated, not... by re- regulated, you mean they're very illegal, right? Um, my understanding is that the subscription rates for opioids is more than half what it is in other countries, in like the U.S., for instance. Okay. So, uh, bringing them over, it's incredibly tough. And so, like even like cold medicine and whatnot can be a big issue trying to bring that over. Um, yeah, yeah. My wife was, cause my wife just went to Japan last year and she was talking about, you know, how difficult it was to get through, you know, some of the medicine that they, that she wanted to bring. And, uh, but like, of course, pot is a huge issue. We saw that with Matt Seidel yeah. who, you know, got locked away for a month almost, right. um, cause of that and might not be able to come back to the country. Uh, versus something like steroids is really funny cause it's not exactly illegal, and moreover, Japan uses like the excuse that none of our athletes are failing for steroids, and so it's not a problem. It's kind of their <laughs> rationale for um, things. But I think uh, for for certain, much like in Mexico, I would not be surprised if there's a much higher prevalence of wrestlers using steroids as a way to um, treat some of their injuries yeah. and continue on. Than maybe even in the United States, especially in the WWE system. Well, I, not to say the, the understanding yeah. I have in Mexico is you can just go into any drugstore and buy steroids. I don't know if that's correct. Maybe somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. But that's always 
the scuttlebutt that I've heard is like, oh yeah, oh, yeah I'm wrestling. You just you just go to Mexico and you just walk right in and you buy it. Oh, I'm, do you know if that's true? Do you have any idea if if that's to, yeah? I mean, I've, true that's, in Japan. That's generally what I've heard is that yes, that there's no problem. And it's, it's like the same thing where it, or something you just buy it. In, in in Japan, I don't know if it's quite that easy. I think you might still have to get them prescribed. But yeah. a lot of it also goes down to the idea that sometimes it's not illegal to have steroids. It's illegal to distribute steroids, those kind of laws. Yeah. So, you know, it, there's a big difference between having them and distributing them. Right. And so uh, uh, for the most part, it's not going to be prosecuted. But just it's a very different culture on those sort of things. So, you know, there's probably less pill popping the way there is in the U.S., yeah. especially with opioids. But there's probably a lot more um, other types of things that are happening, too. So it, it as far as I know, there is no specific, you know, wellness policy that I've ever been told. I'm sure if you're ever in a condition that they don't think you're allowed to perform in, you know, they let you know and they punish you. Yeah. Uh, My impression is the culture in Japan is just there's way less drug usage. Um and, well, and I, but I mean, you, you know, but there's also less physicals going on, you know, like someone who has a neck the way Masawa did right. or, you know, even Takayama. It, it sounds like, you know, would they ever pass actual physical screening? Uh, we just saw the Japanese um, women's wrestler from stardom who came to the U.S. likely uh, was diagnosed with serious. Yeah, was diagnosed with serious neck issues and essentially didn't end up joining WWE and appears to have gone back to stardom now. Mm -hmm. And that says something about, you know, what standard they're using. That's not to say I think anyone who's been a pro wrestler for a number of years at the top of their game is going to show some pretty bad physical abuse. And I've heard of lots of wrestlers who have been signed by WWE who go to that initial screening and they don't come out looking like roses and they have to, you know, try to find some way to make it look like it's going to be better for them. And, you know, guys get hurt all the time and you could always have a freak accident. But there is something to be said, I think, right now about the fact that you've had some really serious injuries going on with people. And I'm not sure whether or not that there's any kind of physical screening that is, you know, kind of keeping people out of the ring when they shouldn't be in the ring or they need more time to heal. Yeah. And at least when it comes to steroids in Japan, you don't see a, like a wrestling culture that values bodybuilder physiques as much. As much, but I mean, there's that one guy on the undercard of of those New Japan shows. Exactly. You know, Vince would be salivating for. I don't know how tall he is, but uh, he's got a pretty amazing physique. And, you know, Strongman back in the old days of uh, New Japan was also pretty uh, pretty buff. Right. And and, and there's big guys even like Daisuke Sekimoto and Yuji Okabayashi who who look huge. Who knows if they're taking anything or not, but they are big, beefy men. Or like Masato Tanaka is another guy I used to always think about back in the day who had quite a physique. He's, he's really was, slimmed down if you've seen him in recent years. Yes, he has. Which he maybe definitely that has. tells you he, he stopped uh, doing something he normally did. Um, you know, speaking of Japan and wrestling and WWE, you wrote, wrote uh, Ronda Rousey to WWE Anokiism. Do you want to uh, clarify what you mean by that? Yeah. Oh, for, real quick, though. Uh, Katsuya Kitamura is, is, the, is the beefy, the super jacked um, – New Japan Young Lion. Uh, so Ronda Rousey, I think this was this news was originally broken by Sean Ross Sapp of of, of uh, Fightful.com, which I write for. Uh, that Ronda Rousey, it sounds like she's uh, getting into training and maybe considering doing something with WWE. Uh, and it, it just really made me think that you know look at uh, look at Japanese wrestling. It sort of makes me feel like well, Japanese wrestling was it was ahead of 
U.S. wrestling in, in, in some way. And in some ways, this analogy doesn't completely uh, mesh. But we're getting to the point now where MMA is or was really popular in the U.S., kind of like how it was really popular in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, more popular, getting more popular than pro wrestling, arguably. And you're seeing that crossover where you've got these people who are maybe big MMA names and they're maybe going to take that step in, into pro wrestling. And I think it'll go better <laughs> uh, in, in this scenario in the U.S. Than it, than it did in Japan where you, where you just had these, you know, not very skilled uh, pro wrestlers having a less exciting pro wrestling style of, of match. I'm, I'm thinking of, of people like Kazuki Fujita. Even like Don Fry did some matches. Um, we, we remember like Anoki's big push of Lyoto Machida. Um, well, and all of IGF has, you know, and, at times brought in right. tons of guys. And and the, um, and the big thing that really hurt Japanese wrestling was you would have the reverse crossover in that you would have people like Yuji Nagata be, being sent in there to fight the greatest heavyweights in, in MMA at the time, like Mirko Krokop and, and Fedor Emelianenko, and just get completely destroyed, despite Nagata having, you know, a pretty good amateur wrestling background, but was not an actively competing, you know, combat sports athlete. Um, sort of, but you can make the analogy and, like, hey, it's basically CM Punk. I remember watching that CM Punk uh, f- fight in UFC where he fought Mickey Gall, uh, and thinking, well, all right, CM Punk, are you, are you Yuji Nagata or are you Yoshihiro Takayama? It's like, are you going to get destroyed immediately, or are you going to have a performance where you lose, but you still look great in losing, and it's a spectacle and, and all that. And we we know what happened with Takayama and, and Fry. It's the the thing that people have been bringing up is, you know, this news about, uh, you know, sadly, Yoshiro Takayama's paralyzed, uh, but he became a really big star because he went in there with Don Fry at Pride 21 in, I think it was 2002, and they just hauled off and punched each other rapidly in the face, and it's one of the most memorable moments in MMA history, and it made Takayama an even bigger star than he was because Takayama's reputation already he had, he'd had a fight with uh, shoot fight in pride with Fujita where he lost but looked pretty tough in doing so and it makes it I mean we have heard stories that companies have thought about bringing in MM stables MMA stables for years I mean going back in the old observers you can find lots of examples where they were talking to Mark Coleman and Bob Sapp and of course they had Ron Waterman for years doing dark matches for WWE and um, different people. I mean, the fact that Brock ended up a, a, a UFC star is interesting. The fact that um, Ronda wants to do things with wrestling is interesting. I think some of it also goes down to um, it makes a big difference whether or not you're paying your star a whole bunch of money to come in and do your thing or whether that star seems like they want to do it on their own. And intriguingly, you know, you can look back and look at a lot of guys who are big football players in the – 70s and the 80s who were not really um, or bodybuilders who were not even really wrestling fans who ended up being very good wrestlers or wrestling stars. Um, And so, you know, this idea of like, I always want to do it from a kid does not necessarily mean that's the difference between who makes a star and who's not a star. Um, The other part being, you know, being able to bring people in that are uh, able to to do promos and do the other things that are going to help a lot that makes a big difference. Right. So if you're bringing in Ken, you know Ken guys Shamrock, that are good at MMA, like Ken Shamrock who, is. If you ever listen to Ken Shamrock's interviews, I think even in the early UFCs, he's a very interesting character. But then you bring him to WWE and becomes this caricature of whatever he was. Well, and and Ken's a weird one too because Ken had been pro wrestling before he was fighting right. MMA fighting. Because not even the stuff in Japan, the stuff he did in the U.S., you know, 
he he was a whole whole there versus like a Dan Severn or someone who again kind of toying that line because he also did a lot of pro wrestling yeah but was a terrible promo right um but just you know also the idea that I think in Japan a lot of times it worked even if the guys were not good promos they still were getting pushed and getting featured and here I think they were going to be a little bit more selective of trying to find people that are are fuller characters. Because what we've discovered is, you know, obviously the physique alone is not going to be really the determination of who is who's a badass and who's not a badass. Um, Ronda Rousey is such a big star. You know, it's kind of like arguing, do you want to have the rock in your movie? Um, That's not to say the movie's going to be success. Hercules certainly wasn't. But um, it it does say a lot about, you know, we're not talking about the Shayna Baszler's of the world who is in WWE and doing stuff, but is a very different class of a person than say a Ronda Rousey. Yeah. Well, Shayna Baszler's um, already demonstrated, you know, she went out and, and, and got pro wrestling training and she's done a, a great deal of work on the indies. So it's not going to be like a, a one shot with WWE, like maybe Ronda Rousey will be. Or even like, I would say even like a Holly Holm or something where you take someone who is not seem like they have an interest in doing professional wrestling stuff uh-huh. and you're just paying them to come in. Ronda, I think, has always had some interest in it. And, you know, the fact that she was at WrestleMania and doing stuff, that wasn't because she was being paid a ton of money. It was because she wanted to, you know, get get involved in this way. Right. Um, At least the way I read it, you know, maybe someone will disagree, um, I think. But when you're a young person, you know, and and certain things seem cool, I think it's in the radar there versus it's really tough sometimes to convert someone who is just in it for the money. And you're right. It destroyed New Japan. And in terms of of pushing these people that were both not even necessarily charismatic, but also not um, doing any favors for their established stars. Yeah. So were, were, you, really were you following Japanese wrestling closely at that time? You know, I have followed the Observer yeah. and the discussions that they have through those things very closely for many years. Yeah. So I I observed it kind of um, peripherally. Yeah. Because I was, I would listen to Iyata every day, and I would read the Observer, and I would, you know, follow Jap- follow the wrestling websites. Yeah, and so that was, was like, like right I could, that was like right around the, like the birth of my Japanese wrestling fandom, or it was like right after. Um, and I had a big break of like following Japanese wrestling between like 2004 and 2013, but uh, that that's one of the times where I was following it really closely and getting a lot of tapes, and even like even doing some translated news reporting and stuff. And just like I'm trying to imagine, like what was it? Like looking back on it now, like what was Inoki thinking? Like he, I guess he just thought that, all right, MMA is getting more popular, and he probably saw himself as a mixed martial artist, or he saw it all as one combat sport, and just thinking like it, it needs to evolve, and and maybe thinking well, but maybe thinking that mind, somebody is... like Nakamura was going to have to come up and be, be, he needed somebody who was going to be the guy who could both be successful in shoot fights and be a, a good pro wrestler too. And and you got to always think of Inoki as being much more of a Hogan mentality yeah. than a Vince McMahon mentality. Mm-hmm. And you got to think of Inoki as being the guy who fought Muhammad Ali. Right. You know, he is a guy that that views himself that way. And so a lot of times he is looking at what was best for him. He was looking at what he thought would be best for that kind of legacy and belief. And he's going to come at it from that viewpoint. How did that benefit him, though? Like it, it just – Really well, it's the, the legacy of New Japan, and that's about it. About it, and like MMA. But I think it was yeah. the legacy of professional wrestling and MMA being one. Mm-hmm. You know, the idea that you know y- y- he fought the world's best fighter, Muhammad Ali, right? And he, and and he, now and he fought all these New other Japan, guys, of all these other disciplines. You know, as well. Yeah, and New it, Japan is works. now the pinnacle of the art of fighting, and the best fighters in the world are in New Japan. Yeah. 
that would be my take. I I don't know the mentality close enough to be able to really speak to it. So I, I you know, I would let a lot of other people kind of speculate on why he ended that direction. But I think if you really dig into a lot of people, you see so often that it's whatever they as a child <laughs> they really wanted. Yeah. You know, that's where they drive themselves to even to the point of folly. Right. It's like the, the my vision of my fantasy of what pro wrestling should be should be what everybody likes. I think we see that with all promoters and even uh, certain uh, wrestling commentators, maybe myself included. <laughs> well, I mean, when I when I moved to Minnesota and I discovered Minnesota was not regulated for wrestling, really, and that I could promote shows and I didn't have to go get $10,000 bonds and insurance and fire inspections yeah. and everything else. I immediately wanted to book myself something that was kind of a mix of, um, you know, I, I basically wanted to do S SPWC. I wanted to do Survival Tobita versus the World, wow. where you know I wanted to do monster wrestling, where I was like, this would be the coolest thing. Is is the idea of kind of good versus evil, but theatrical? Have, good have you seen evil. Kaiju Big Battle? And exactly. And so then Kaiju Big Battle came around. And I was like, oh, that's that. So I was like, yeah, that's. And I, you know, the fact that Kaiju Big Battle is never been big. You know, it's a thing. It exists. It's interesting. It it appeals to certain people, but it's not the thing. They just came to Niagara um, Falls not too long ago. Yeah. And so so but that was like my dream. And it wasn't because I thought that was gonna make me a billion dollars. It's because I thought that would make me feel fulfilled as a, you know Well you want something that you're gonna feel excited about and passionate about. Yeah. And so that's the difference is like there's a lot of times that you, you'll do the difference between what's best for business and what makes you fulfill, feel fulfilled or, or interests you or it seems like you can connect with on a level that you're willing to put time in. And you know, the more I've done WrestleNomics, that's the, been my biggest struggle is between do I want to write articles that are clickbait that get people to pay me to write articles or would I rather explore topics that make me feel fulfilled? And it, it's tough. It's really tough sometimes. And uh, like and anyone else will struggle, you know, you have to kind of decide how much do you want to sell out. Yeah. I, I would like to think that the kind of work we're doing is helping inform people better. And and as and this might start out really small, but as more people become informed, they're able to better understand kind of what we're talking about. And then this helps us build a following. And it just it just creates a more informed wrestling fan base, even if, if it's only a, a few dozen people or a handful of people who follow us. Um, so it at least creates more readers or listeners or whatever it is who are in, in an, on an increasing basis engaging what we're talking about and asking good questions and things like that. And I feel like I, I experienced that in the last couple of years I've been doing this. Yeah, yeah. I think the biggest challenge is that there's something to always be said with the idea of polishing your work and putting it into a format that then you're willing to kind of execute against it versus always having it as a, a refining basis. And what I mean by that is there's a difference between publishing a book and publishing articles because articles a lot of times is just you kind of being like, now at this exact point in time, here's how I feel. Here's a thousand words on it versus a book. You're more trying to say Here's something that I feel like I will stand the test of some time. And I think that's always the next level for me is trying to find how can we take some of the stuff that we've done and then refine it to a point where we can turn it into something bigger. And so whether it's my law lawsuit research projects, whether it's, um, you know, uncovering financials and, and doing analysis on that, whether it's looking at statistics on wrestling, at some point you kind of want to package it up because I think there's a large segment of the audience that 
prefers things to be packaged up rather than to be fed to them spoon fed and not necessarily always being ready to be served. That's an interesting and that's the difference to, yeah. between Twitter and, you know, publishing. And and I think that's the one thing that we haven't done a good job of of becoming accessible to is that audience that would rather buy a book than listen to a podcast and read, you know, Twitter. I would think the audience that wants to buy a book, though, is shrinking and the audience that wants to listen to a podcast or consume a shorter form written thing like an article is is growing if only because i think one is the wwe network and one is your progress on demand you know one is growing one is not growing but i still think there's sometimes a larger audience i i just have personally experienced you know even when i talk to analysts for companies they have no interest in reading twitter rumors or going to bleacher report and you know following it week by week they either prefer prefer to consume something discreetly or they just base their opinion on the one thing that they have to build off of. What, what does that mean? They're, they want to, do you say, build their opinion, dis- or they want they want to consume something discreetly? That they would love to buy a research report about WWE that says this, 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 and this. They wouldn't necessarily want to have to read 15 articles, listen to 10 calls, follow it week by week. So. And then, or they, they find one piece of information, you know, something that was said to them by some CFO in, in WWE and they fixate on that and that becomes truth. So is there some way or some format that we could use maybe on a recurring basis that would appeal more to people like that? Like if we did something like a, that's, this crossed my mind before, if we did something like a, a quarterly KPI type document or report that, um, showed stats or metrics that WWE doesn't doesn't uh, give themselves. I'm, I'm thinking of things like, what if we created a document where we extracted attendances from the observer and presented them in a similar way that the KPIs are presented or something like that, whatever seems appropriate. And maybe well, we could take other things I've, like that, like the, the live plus same day uh, ratings we get or the, the Showbuzz daily viewership numbers we get. I mean, I've showed you what the stock... Um, analysts write up after every quarter. Yeah, and and you see it. It has commentary, then it has some graphs, and it has yeah. some financials. I I could see something like that where you're. What I've always found is I'll tell someone, instead of paying me, you should just subscribe to the Observer. I I will literally tell someone that. Yeah. And they will nine times out of ten still say I'd rather just talk to you because they would have to or, hash through the, the ten thousand words. And that's no offense to the observer, but like it's, the observer is covering the entire industry, and they're not necessarily concerned with the entire industry, and they're certainly not going to take a morning or an afternoon to sit down and read the entire observer, right? Yeah, they oftentimes will say I want to know more about X, and a lot of times it's really hard to explain. So if they say I want to know more about the relationship between WWE and USA Network. It's hard to explain. Well, do you realize they went to Viacom for several years? Do you know why they went to Viacom? Do you know who Bonnie Hammer is? Do you know she was out of power and then, you know, going down that rat hole? Or they'll say, I looked at numbers and between 1995 and 2001, wrestling increased by 20% a year. If I take that straight line average till today, (laughs) it's just like, well, you know, you're, you're looking at a discrete time and place and things have changed so it's it's just funny to me so i i just know that i think there's a a lack of being able to speak to a certain group of people that don't listen to podcasts and aren't interested in weekly news but rather they want to understand something the same way i want to understand um a lot of things where you know i might i read books on terrorism or something and i like to hear the whole story kind of start to finish 
of what happened, who are these players, how did it end? And a lot of times I think in wrestling we lack that, where we 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 give that week by week story, but we don't always put it all into a major context where we can say, what is the evolution of the WWE network? What did people really say in 2012, 13, 14 about it? Where are we today and how has it changed? Because they only remember the latest buzzwords. Right. And I, I feel like that's what's missing from kind of the wrestling marketplace today. So like and who, who are the who, who are who are who makes up the audience for this? Is it people who don't necessarily follow wrestling? Maybe some people who do follow wrestling, but are especially interested in the business aspects of it. Like maybe our audience is already. Um, um, I think there's I think all those casual fans that enjoy knowledge that not necessarily interested in week to week stories. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny to me, like. You know, Justin Henry has done a, a decent job uh, with he's done a good job of, of writing these books about, you know, WWF and in kind of looking at a certain number of years and then kind of focusing on what are those. <laughs> you can hear my dog in the back, probably. I can. Uh, what happened during that time? I think that I think the audience for that is the same audience who buys the art of Atari book. It's people that have interest in subjects and they have disposable income and they're not interested in, in consuming things all right, all right, piecemeal, start their but they, they're they interested in a larger oh, understanding oh, of a subject. And, uh, you know, there's, there's still a group of people out there who like kind of well-reasoned full visions of things. And uh, I think that's the one thing that's kind of missing from our marketplace a lot of the time. Um, is that we, we're really good at covering the news day to day, but we don't have a lot of people who do those long form pieces where they, you know, kind of try and, and write it up. And it takes a long time. Like when I think of Ian Frisch's article that he did for Vice, where he talked about, you know, Shane McMahon trying to come back into the company and bringing, you know, the million little pieces guy. And I know how many months Ian worked on that and how many conversations he had with people. And what ended up being in that article, he could probably write, you know, a four chapter book just on what he learned and as discussions. And he is a, you know, and, and no disrespect to Ian, he's he's a peripheral wrestling reporter. He's not someone who, you know, has been covering this industry for 20 years. He is someone who was coming into yeah. it from a very different aspect of just being like, this seems interesting to me. I'm going to look at it the way a lot of that Vice stuff is. Not someone saying, I followed this for 30 years. Let me tell you about my passion. It's a, I found a story. I'm going to write about the story. And so, you know, that that's just one thing I, I, I've thought a lot about is that I still don't feel like there's good investigative journalism that is done on wrestling in a form where it takes a full view. And, you know, when it is done, yeah. it gets controversial. You know, it's the ring of hells of the world where people come out of it feeling very differently. And well, the book by Matthew, uh, Radizalo, I'm, I'm, I'm butchering his name here that came out a few years ago about the, about the Benoit story where it had a lot of the more salacious, uh, stories that had been taken and was very um, was received all different ways. You know, some people really thought he did a really good job of kind of Looks telling stories now. that people didn't want to hear. And some people thought it was very salacious and muck rocking, muck raking and, and just kind of took any Internet rumor as truth. Oh, and man. then some people said that stories were being recast in a different light. So the, the famous example being the pissing on people's boots argument over whether or not this was a sign of respect or disrespect or jokes or just wrestlers being wrestlers. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there, there was, it was interesting kind of reading that. Um, so I, I just think that there's still something to be said about the idea of, of cap 
capsulizing some of the research that's being done, not necessarily on the who who is, uh, you know, the Daniel Bryan story about the yes movement, but rather on the the financial side. Save big on brunch for mom all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90 percent lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi or 7-Up all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 